Umberto, tell me a few of the most charismatic people you can think of. So for me, there's uh, Tom Cruise. So what's charismatic about Tom Cruise to you? He's always full of vitality and life. And I know he said some wacky things because of Scientology, but if you put that aside, you can tell he is living. He is intense. He's not here to just like show up. He's here to play. So when you see that energy, that attracts you? Yeah, it's energetic, and it's energetic in his performances. So there's hardly a movie that he's in that is not at least interesting because he's in it. And he just owns those performances. He can be accused of like he's always Tom Cruise, but it's entertaining. It's entertaining to watch. And you can imagine he walks into a party, and he's just chilling. You can imagine, even if people didn't know who he was, like for some reason... No one knows who Tom Cruise, the celebrity, is. Right. You can imagine him being the life of the party. Absolutely. Just based on his personality. And it might be a superficial life of the party, but I could see it. Yeah. In fact, that's a little bit of what I also see as the glibness. There is a glibness to his to his thing. But but it's it's certainly like if he shows up at a party, everyone's paying attention. Right. When I Google like most charismatic people, we got Adolf Hitler, very charismatic. Yeah, he's, he's known for, for his charisma. Yeah. We got Jim Jones, religious leader who took everyone down yep. to South America and asked everyone or and to some extent coerced and forced everyone to complete suicide. Princess Diana, very charismatic, lots of lots of eyes on her, lots of tabloids. I think right. that's another thing to look at is like how much do the tabloids pay attention to that person? I think that's another potential indication of charisma, also just potential indication of like your – salaciousness of your story or something right oprah Win winfrey mm-hmm. very charismatic you absolutely have to imagine that before she was famous when she walked into a room she owned that room you have to imagine that when she talked to you you felt like whoa this person really is intense and has a lot of uh, excellent questions right. and is you know interested and has a lot of different things to say gandhi moved an entire country right. you know uh, Kanye, very magnetic personality. Every, you know, there's a lot of rappers. That's the one thing you think of is like there's hundreds of, of other or at least dozens of other uh, hip-hop artists who had similar success on the charts. Right. What is it about Kanye? I mean, obviously Kanye had a lot more hits in, in you know, strung over the span of 10 years or something. But there's been other artists like that, who, you know, yeah. who had similar success and – but not nearly as much press, you know, attention. Uh, Ronald Reagan, very charismatic person. He was a right. uh, an actor and then governor and then president. Kim Kardashian, you know, the one she's actually interesting because she doesn't have any particular talent, right? She she doesn't. She's not a singer. She's not a basketball player. She can't act <laughs> really. Yeah, I I don't know much about her. I mean, I know that she's famous and she's got her show and all the. People in her life are now making lots and lots of money. but Yeah, but it's just something about her. Obviously, the way she looks is a part of that, but there's a lot of women who look like her, I mean, in that category. Sure. So it's, it, there's something about the way she holds herself, the way she talks, the way she looks at people. Or, there's got to be – there's a special something that I think Kim yeah. Kardashian probably has. Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, Jennifer Aniston I think is another person like that. Jennifer Aniston, when she is in an interview on Jimmy Kimmel or something, it's just there's just something compelling about her. You just, you just want to, you just want to listen to her. You just want to know what what's happening right. for her. Uh, Donald Trump, obviously. 
Jay-Z, Elizabeth Holmes, which we talked about. Paris Hilton, I thought, I thought was another person, kind of similar to Kim Kardashian. And then it's like there's a lot of rich, uh, you know, socialites. Right. Uh, what is it about Paris Hilton that sort of elevated her? I mean, mm-hmm. part of it's being in the right place, right time. But I think another part of it is, you know, people just have that special something. Yep. Uh, Paul Rudd, I just watched his Hot Ones video mm-hmm. where he did the the dab, the hot wings. Um, and uh, man, is that guy dripping with charisma. Just a, Yeah, he's great. Just a lovable guy. But it feels like you could say this about um, basically anyone, any human that rises above a certain level of notoriety within their, their grouping is by definition charismatic. Um, yeah. And that's a question that we'll get into. You know, what, what, what is the definition of charisma exactly? Is it just the fact that you're famous? Yeah. Because I don't think that's true. You know, you can be famous for a lot of reasons. Well, sir, I, I don't mean famous just in the like, oh, yeah, I know about that person because he fell off a building. I mean that it's, it is, in fact, your persona <laughs> that is the famous part. Right. Uh, because you're either an athlete, an actor, and not necessarily an athlete, but like uh, a public icon, you know. And so if your fame is directly correlated to your act. <laughs> well, we'll get into that because at first I thought there wouldn't be a way to, to really discuss this. I, people have asked us to, to talk about this occasionally. And at first I was like, well, what are you going to say? It just seems like a amorphous conversation about opinion. Mm-hmm. But actually there's a ton of research literature on this topic that we're going to get into. Um, some some other people that people suggested on Facebook, famous patron Lennon, who actually suggested us doing this episode, said Harrison Ford in Indian Star Wars. Megan on Facebook said Elizabeth Warren. Maete said Will Smith. Uh, Joe on Facebook said me, um, which is uh, hilarious. My mom said Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. Jesse said Barack Obama. For Satis said Marlon Brando. And Jay said Bernie – or Jed said uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Bernie Sanders. I deleted the D on his name, so I thought his name was Jay. Uh, um, so the question is, you know, let me ask you, Berto. These people who, you know, one could say that charisma's in the eye of the beholder. You, you know it when you see it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, your, your Will Smiths, your Kim Kardashians, your Bill Clintons, your um, Princess Dies. These are people – that have a special something, um, how are they different from the rest of us? You know, what is the difference? If, if you were to measure it somehow or put some kind of label to it, what is the difference? Uh, so let me start by saying, first of all, it definitely literally is in the eye of the beholder. And it's just that if it's in enough eyes of the beholders, that propels that person past the point where we say, ooh, that person's got a special something. Because when it's just like, you know, 0.01% of the population thinks someone is particularly interesting – then we won't all really label them that way, even if those okay. people swear by their opinion. Right? So, so you're saying that a big factor in whether or not someone is identified as charismatic is how many people are essentially paying attention to them. Yeah, there's some critical mass. Okay, what else? Um, and then, you know, essentially, I think that there are, there are things they must do that resonate with large enough number of people. And so the things that they can, they've got to do, it, it's, it, it can be like they were in a movie that was great or they were in a sport and really succeeded. Like, in other words, I don't think you can be perceived as truly charismatic if you didn't also, like, succeed at something. 
As, and that Kim was Kardashian, the, she, she had succeeded. a she, she had a sex tape. Yeah, but that's not what propelled her to the fame she's got now. It was the show. Okay. The show is what made her... um, In fact, a lot of people poo-pooed the idea that she would have any fame because it was just based on the tape. Right. But then... And and that kind of goes to show no one would have said... is is, You know, asked, do you think Kim Kardashian is charismatic around that time? I think most people would have said, no, she's just famous because of a sex tape. But now they probably... A lot of people would say, yeah... And it's because she did this show that everyone liked. Well, not everyone, but she a lot sustained. Of she liked. Did, yeah, right. Yeah, and, and that's important to point out is that you look at Kim, you're like, oh, she just stands around looking pretty, and you know, people pay attention. But it's much more complicated than that. I mean, the the amount of business choices that these this family makes and the producers make um, all compels the. You know the charismatic viewpoint. As an as a as a counterexample, imagine someone that's in the uh, let's take the chess world, and this guy, man, whenever you put a camera on him, he's like he just speaks so smoothly and he's got aggressive viewpoints and he's like, and but he loses every single game. <laughs> so I don't know, like if he's going to do so well in the court of public opinion. Well, there's so for football fans out there. Tim Tebow is actually a good example of this. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you remember Tim I Tebow. I do, a little bit. He yeah. was the guy. He was he the would guy. kneel or whatever. Right, yeah. he would pray. Yeah. And although a lot of football players pray, why was him, why was he such a focus? And he actually wasn't that good of a football player. He sure. had his moments in college, and he had his moments in, in the NFL for sure. But when you add him up on the scheme of the best quarterbacks of the past 30 years, he's he's probably in the bottom third, really. Yeah. Uh, but there was something about him that was just very charismatic. And he was playing on the NFL. Like, but, that's already rising to a level of... But how many of us can remember quarterbacks that were playing in what what year was that 2005 or whatever it was? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, he was, he, there, were, there were 50 other quarterbacks backups included in the NFL, why do we know him and his look? And why is, I mean, to this day, like I'll get suggested videos on YouTube saying, watch another documentary about Tim Tebow. (laughs) And and, and I watch him sometimes. I'm saying, I'm definitely not saying it is uh, sufficient, but it is a requirement. In other words, I bet you that there are countless dudes that are kind of like the same personality as Tim Tebow. Right. But they're not in the NFL. They're not in the NBA. They're not in anything famous. So they'll never be perceived by the masses as charismatic. But one could argue that at that time in the NFL, there were other personalities that had similar qualities as Tim Tebow in that moment. What was it about Tim Tebow? What gave him that special something? Was it the circumstance? Obviously, Yes, because he's in the NFL and blah, blah, blah. Was it, but was it something about his personality? And I think that's what famous patron Lennon was wanting us to get into. Because another facet or uh, way of looking at charisma or way of defining charisma is that person who, can, who isn't famous, who walks into a room and people just go, wow, that woman is charismatic. You know, the way she holds herself, right. the way she talks. Um, and she's not famous yep. and she doesn't have any particular talent, but she is magnetic. Or the guy at work who uh, gets everyone to laugh at their jokes and, and everyone just likes that person. And when that person stands up and says, I have an opinion, people listen more than they do to someone else. What is it about that person? Sure. That's not circumstance. That's not fame. There's something about the way that that person holds themselves that makes them more charismatic. Potentially. 
it, it's interesting because you can come up with counterexamples and so maybe or, or sorry, counterexamples to maybe the naive notion because you could say, well, you know, they have a loud, very present voice. They are probably tall. They're probably good looking. They're probably the, you can make a list, but then you can definitely find counterexamples for almost all of it. Right. So when famous patron Lyndon requested this topic, originally I thought this was going to be a very floppy, speculative conversation, like undefinable, some even define charisma on the internet as being a supernatural gift given by God, like Rasputin or Caesar or or Jesus, as you mentioned, or a king or something. That's the way we actually used to see charisma was like, mm-hmm. Well, the reason why Jesus had charisma was because he was the son of God. Right. Or the reason why Rasputin had this charisma was because he was demon-possessed. You know, there's that sort of notion. So I thought my field avoided the topic, and thus I've, I avoided it. But after diving into the research literature, there's a lot of strong scientific inquiry into what makes some people charismatic as opposed to other people. There's a lot of disciplines that have that have actually looked into it. I've discovered psychology, management, because at work you're always interested in charisma, uh, sociology, obviously, and political science, which is another one. There's been some not- notable seminal studies over the last number of years, Shamir et al. in 93, Conger and Kanungo in 1987, Yukol in 99, House et al. 1991, and Gardner Avolio in 1998. And these are just the seminal papers. Um, and it's actually gain, gaining prominence in my field in sociology, social psychology, psychology. Berto, why do you think it's gaining prominence recently? Because uh, probably we live in such a celebrity culture, celebrity culture, and we have celebrity politicians and we have right. celebrity everythings. Yeah. Something like 90% of people in my field are liberals. And when Trump became president, it was, uh, you know, uh, a shock to the system for a lot of people Mm -hmm. in my field. And that shapes the sort of studies and the and also what tends to get published in in journal um, journals as well. There's but even if we don't look at current trends, there's huge, huge consequences to charisma if you frame it in a certain way. I mean, the way you're framing it is much more circumstantial. But what if there are certain qualities or or even if there are circumstances, you know, depending on who is elevated, our entire society can and history can be altered, right? I mean, Hitler, for example, what if what if it wasn't Hitler? What if it was someone else? You know, it's, it's an interesting question. Um how do we avoid how do we notice the next hitler how do we notice how do we notice the next uh, gandhi so we can elevate that person uh you know good and bad ways um but also there's a lot of people who are like you and me on social media who have a vested interest in trying to be quote unquote charismatic even though we wouldn't necessarily frame it that way mm-hmm. to be a you can literally be a billionaire uh, I mean, I don't know how much PewDiePie owns, <laughs> but it's got to be a lot of money, right? Right. I mean, right? I mean, doesn't he make... Oh, yeah. He makes a ton of money. Yeah. I mean, how much money do you think he has, like, in the bank? Tens of millions. Yeah. And he's just a dude in what? Was he... Is he German or Den- Danish or where is he from? I think he's from here, right? Oh, Isn't I th- he the States I he, guy? I thought he was PewDiePie. Yeah, I think uh, he's from the States. I thought he was Swedish or something. I mean, anyway. He might descend but I think he's a U.S. guy. Uh, but anyway, um, he's just sitting in wherever he is, and he makes these videos online, which 
and, which are apparently cr- incredibly charismatic to people. And then once he actually get, got that platform, he actually started to voice his opinions and could and had a sway on people's sure. belief systems and everything. Um, so you can become a millionaire just based on your charisma uh, alone. Right. Or a lot of people on the internet are interested in like how to get the girl, right? Right. And charisma is potentially a... Uh, line to go down in terms of getting the girl or getting the promotion. Right, right. Um, also, you know, leaders define our times. When you think about the Civil War, who do you think of? Uh, Grant and uh, Lincoln and right. uh, the, other, the other bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, you mean Lee or something? Lee, yeah. yeah, these were all reportedly very charismatic people. Abraham Lincoln apparently was very charismatic. Right. And so we can look into that. When we think of civil rights, who do you think of? Martin Luther King and the uh, women – I forget the name of the woman, the suffrage. Uh, I don't come from this country, so I don't know all the history names. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you mixing suffrage with civil rights? No. I said Martin Luther King. Oh, well, OK. I, you're saying just the 60s. Yeah. I kind of meant civil the, rights the, the 20th century oh, okay. civil rights. But yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean when – it's sort of bizarre because when you think about the Civil War, the Civil War involved, involved hundreds of thousands of people. Right. Um, and even if you just limit it to politicians, we're talking about hundreds of people. Uh, when you think about civil rights, again, millions of people. Right. And when you think about figures in the civil rights in the 60s, we're, again, we're talking about hundreds of people. Back then, yeah. Martin Luther King was just one of many yeah. figures. And what is it about Martin Luther King that makes us remember him? He's the face of that movement when at the time he was a you know a figure, but he wasn't the only one but it it when you see him talk when he gives his speeches, even just the way his face looks really, the way sure. he wears a suit, the way he walks around it there's just something magnetic about that guy, yeah, definitely I mean part of it could be simply deviations from the norm, and those deviations are paired with some sort of positive connotation. This is what I was saying, that I think there has to be something impressive that they did to go along with it. Um, Or at least perceived, right? Right, because like take Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson is is as far away from an orator as you could imagine, right? He he looks all kind of sort of wimpy and he doesn't look straight at you and he talks with a very little voice like this. And so like he's not what you would imagine is, oh, that's charismatic dude right there. But somehow, I'm sure, I guarantee any room he ever walked into, people would like turn and be like, oh my God, that's Michael Jackson. Now, is it because, you know, chicken and egg, right? He was already a big singer with his family and then he became even more famous. But clearly he wore interesting things that no one else was wearing. He danced in a way that no one else was dancing. And he certainly sang in a way that no one else was singing. And one could argue that his odd way of speaking and holding himself was also a deviation. Was actually charismatic, even though you wouldn't, you wouldn't say to be charismatic, have and, a really high voice, talk in a very shy right. fashion, and act like a like a twelve year old. And that's why I said deviation, not just strong voice. You know, like because like, you get like, apply the same thing to fo- uh, others, like Bjork or like or actually like probably Gandhi. I, I don't remember the actual video, but I I from what I know, Gandhi wasn't like a Hitler. You know, in that. He wasn't the pound the podium and yell from the ramparts, right? It was like, so, you know, talk softly, carry a, a soft walking stick, you know? 
uh, talk softly and starve yourself. Yeah. Um, actually, you don't. It's been a while since I've seen footage of, of him in real life. Of course, it was you know back before there was a ton of footage of such things. But anyway. Or, or sorry, another counterexample, or counterexample to that narrative from uh, Osama bin Laden, the video that... We, videos that have surfaced of Osama bin Laden, who, as much as uh, we may dislike him, clearly he was able to galvanize some people, right? And you watch these videos, and it's like this totally calm, right. passive yeah, great, speaking. Great, great example. He was, the, he's the definition of charisma. He got people to do things like kill themselves yeah. or dedicate their the rest of their lives through right. thick and thin of and moving away from their homes and to do terrible things or to, do, to do extreme things. Yeah. And, uh, and yet he wasn't, you know, pounding the podium. Uh, another depressing thought I thought of was like 50 years from now, when they think of our time right now, you yeah. know, who you know, who they're going to think of certainly. And it's like, uh, Alec Baldwin, Birdo, <laughs> top five most charismatic people to you. Yeah, so I mentioned Alec Baldwin. I think Alec Baldwin is very, very charismatic. I've seen him be charismatic in pretty much every movie and show he's ever been on. Yeah, he has a podcast. Oh, I I didn't know that actually. Yeah, That's I, probably amazingly entertaining. Uh, this, this is a thing, and it's a great podcast. Oh, I'll have to listen to it because uh, I've seen his interviews. I've seen him be just like on live things, but every single performance. The guy just gets hired to per- portray someone who commands respect. Yeah. Period. The way he talks, the way he walks, everything. And so that guy is is crazy charismatic. Yeah, absolutely. Did you see him in comedians getting in cars getting coffee? No, I didn't see it. Oh, is it's it good. Yeah, it's okay. okay yeah. Um, the other one I mentioned, Tom Cruise. So the, you asked, you had asked me some questions. Like the first one was, I believe almost everything they say. That's Alec Baldwin for me. Like if Alec Baldwin's saying something, I'll be like, yeah, I believe it. <laughs> you okay. know. And it, what comes to mind is his speech in Glengarry Glen Ross. Mm. He's like, coffee is for closers. I'm like, all right, I believe it. Um, and then the second one was, I want to watch them do almost anything. That to me is the Tom Cruise factor. Okay. Because he's just. Forget his kooky outside of the movie things. Whenever you're watching him on an interview or on a movie or whatever, it's like, man, I just I can't look away. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, other ones, uh, you asked me, uh, I want to please them and obey them without question. That was my old Taekwondo sensei. Wow. He was, uh, and I, I'm so sad because I, I sort of forgot his first name, but he was this great leader, you know, and, and everything he would say we'd do, and I, he just commanded an, an incredible amount of respect from all of us. Okay. And to this day, I think of it that way. Um, and then uh, I want to meet them and talk about stuff. Shank Uger from the Young Turks. Oh. I think he's very charismatic. And I, and I would, yeah. And then lastly, I would have followed them off a cliff. No one. Yeah. Oh, but did you, is that five? That was five. One, two, three, four. No one is the fifth one. But but if you ask me, well, give like, me a if, uh, yeah. Okay, I'll give you Mr. Rogers. Okay. I think Mr. Rogers has that quiet charisma that was incredible. Okay, for me, um, uh, I would have followed them off a cliff. Again, it was hard for you know. All of these are kind of mitigated by I. I don't think Umberto and I are actually that susceptible to charismatic people. Uh, I think we're both skeptical of such things. Wait, what do you mean by that? We're both. <laughs> Um, uh, we're both kind of leaders any of ourselves, you know, and, and I, I, I tend to dislike, and I've always disliked cliques and, 
specifically the idea of a cultish attachment to anything. Yeah. I've always been grossed out by it. Yeah. As a Seattle liberal, progressive liberal, the two of us, uh, we have a, you know, a tendency to fall in love with our liberal politicians just like anyone else does. And yet you and I have no problem tearing apart our right. liberal politicians and being like, well, they fucked that one up yep. and that was bullshit. And, you know, so uh, whereas someone else who has a different kind of way of approaching life, it, it might be harder for them to do that. I think right. you and I are just really skeptical about that kind of stuff, you right, know, right, for right. very, for two different reasons. I mean, you grew up in a world where in Colombia, where charismatic leaders literally like destroyed your city. Yeah. You Talk know? about uh, charismatic drug dealers, right? Right. And, yeah. and I grew up uh, not in that world, but I, I just grew up, I think, in a way that I was um, encouraged to really, just really think for myself, I think, was the thing. But anyway, um, but if, if there was someone I was going to fall off a cliff, it would follow off of a cliff. It would be Virginia Satir, who was a, is a family therapist mm. uh, pioneer. Uh, when You have to watch videos of her. When, when she talks, she's this tall, she's like... You know, six foot, sort of grandma, Uh uh, you know, slender, powerful talker, everything she said. And just watching her in session, actually, she just has this way to, like, get people Hmm. to do things that they would never do otherwise. And and I imagine if I was hanging out with her, I would be uh, very much wrapped up in her world. Um, I believe almost everything they say, that's Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah. Sure. Malcolm Gladwell also has a podcast called Revisionist History, which I love. Um, he he just now at the same time I, when I listen to him talk, there are some times when I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. So I don't believe everything he says, but I believe almost everything he says. Um, I want sorry. You noticed I picked an actor on purpose because of what you were saying about skepticism. Yeah. If I'm gonna believe anything they say, might as well be an actor. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jack Black, I, I want to watch him do almost oh, anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he has a, a YouTube uh, channel, right. Jablinski Games. Whenever that comes out, I have like on YouTube, I have that that bell, you know. Oh, so, really? so, so I get an email <laughs> as soon as I come out. I'm, I'm like I'm like viewer eleven out of I think he gets like a hundred million views per oh, wow. per, per, per video or, or some five five ten million. I'm like right there because I I just I'll I'll watch Jack Black do anything I love I love uh, Tenacious D to death I love his Tenacious D movies I love his other movies School of Rock right. uh, Nacho Libre right. uh, I love uh, you know all the all the just everything that guy does I right. will watch him do anything um, I want to please them and obey them without question that's my old mentor Paul David uh, and that he 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 had a charisma to me. You know, very personally, I guess similar to your sensei, where it was just like you just you just feel very compelled to follow them and please them. Right. You know, um, I respect them and want to meet them and talk about stuff. That's Billie Eilish. Uh, she seems like a very interesting person to me. Uh, I can very much relate to her. She, uh, do you know who Billie Eilish is? Yeah, yeah. She's a teenager. Started off just recording at home, right, and was kind of a um, alternative person, right? Alternative kid, yeah. Lived an alternative kind of life. Wasn't into the regular popular stuff, or at least uh, doesn't appear so. 
Um, she's really, she's really nerdy. Like she's a super nerd about the office, the TV show. <laughs> There's this YouTube video where Rain Wilson, who plays D- Dwight Schrute uh-huh. goes to her house and inter- and asks her all these really obscure trivia questions about the office. And she knows, Oh, she knows everything about it. I saw the thumbnail on YouTube. I just, I, I didn't watch it cause I, I had no context. I'm like, I, I heard of Billie Eilish, but I'm like, why would I, would I watch a video of someone answering office questions? Like, she, she, it's crazy how she can, she, 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 it's like she watched it, you know, a hundred times. The, wow. the season. And, and I was similar to that when I was in high school. I, I, I had my crappy recording equipment. I recorded my own music. Um, if I if the internet existed in the eighties, I absolutely would have been posting to to SoundCloud and sharing stuff. And you know, I I was not even one percent as talented as Billie Eilish uh, <laughs> was, but um, but I definitely. And then and then now that she's famous, she's kind of retained her. She hasn't sold out. It, mm-hmm. it doesn't appear. Like one of the things that she does is she she wears very baggy clothes. Because a lot of those, you know, young stars uh, decide to wear very skin tight clothes or, or no clothes at all, and that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I'm sure that you know she was getting pressure to show more skin, and she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't show an ounce of skin. <laughs> she dyes her hair kind of funky. She she talks in a very authentic way. Like the stuff okay. that comes out of her mouth, I'm sure she is a handler. That's like. Can you tone Don't it? Say that. Yeah, can you tone it down a little bit? Because you know you appeal to twelve-year-old girls, and if their moms sure. hear you talking, they're not going to want to. And she probably was just like, "Fuck you, I'm I'm me." You know what yeah. I mean? I'm not going to not be me. I just and I what, just, she, what instrument does she play? An instrument? She programs. You oh, know, okay. she does. She, she you know she programs the drums. You know, she programs okay. the. The bass and so the keyboards, and stuff. she does all the overdubs. In I don't know her current. I'm sure she has producers helping her now. But I back see. in the day when she was on SoundCloud, it was just her and her computer. You know. Oh, nice. Um, I'm guessing she plays the guitar, but I don't know. But anyway, she just seems like a very interesting person, and I, and she and obviously she has charisma, and I feel very um, drawn to her on some level. Mm. Um, for this episode, I'm going to analyze Jack Black th- as we go through charisma. Who okay. do you want to analyze? Oh, interesting. Well, then let's do Alec. Um, most destructive charismatic person, like Hitler, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Charlie Manson. Who's your most destructive charismatic person? Uh, yeah, of the recent years, certainly Hitler. <laughs> okay. But actually, you could argue, actually, you know, you can make an argument around uh, Stalin as well. So, Okay. How about you do Hitler? Um, and, so you're going to do Hitler and Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And I'm going to do Charlie Manson. Okay. Um, final question here, Berto. Uh, before we go into the next section, are we charismatic? Oh, yeah. I mean, certainly, uh, I, I think that something that is always, that I've always felt about myself is that uh, I have some ability that is a little beyond the, maybe the mean or something, to be interesting in a in a group and to be interesting, uh, maybe stand out a little bit. Sometimes, when especially when I was younger, uh, I couldn't invoke that at will and it wouldn't work on every kind of, grouping it still doesn't of course you know there's people that will definitely not be into my brand or your brand of interesting interestingness uh but certainly if there is any sort of thing happening a group meeting an event or whatever uh i have found throughout my life that i am fairly capable of being you know charismatic among that 
that thing. And then we've demonstrated via the podcast that apparently we have some level of interest to a group of people out there. I wouldn't say we're as charismatic as Hitler, but. Uh, right. So let's also analyze us as potential charismatic people. Maybe we have charisma. Maybe we don't. But I think that would be interesting because it brings it down to earth on some level. We can also talk to our own internal process as to whether or not we're trying to be charismatic or yeah. something. Um, you know, what are we doing on purpose? What are we doing without thinking about it? What traits do we have that, that lead us to be either charismatic or uncharismatic? So in today's episode, we're going to dive into – this is just the introduction, by the way. <laughs> we're going to dive into the history of charisma in, in, in going back to the ancient Greeks. We're going to go over the definitions because actually that's a big topic that you have to define. Like right. how do we – yeah. How do we how, how do we define in in linguistics charisma? How do we define it in the in the clinical literature, which I'll get into? What are the different types of charisma, which we've kind of gone into already? Um, do we do you and I possess charismatic qualities? How can one be charismatic? Because a lot of people have that that question. You know, how, how can it be more charismatic? Yeah, in my personal life. Right. Um, what happens when you have too much charisma? Because you can. Uh, what are the theories of charisma? Because mm-hmm. they're that's I didn't realize this, but there's a ton of mm. theoretical literature on, if you know, overall models of charisma and how it emerges oh, wow. in individuals and in society, including evolutionary psychology, which we're going to get into. Nice. Which I actually kind of appreciate uh, this angle, which I didn't think I would. We're also going to look at the research, <laughs> and up until this point, we've been talking about charisma without a basis of def- definition, right. without without the scientific literature. But I, I want to get into all that. And when I first started to prep for this episode, I thought, ah, you know, give it three hours. This has been a month of me actually. Oh, dying. wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that much. Well, because the more I got into it, I was like, man, you know, I, I don't think I can do it justice unless yeah. I really kind of systematically start going through all the all the everything that's ever been written on it. And so this episode represents that. This is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Hanna. I'm a therapist and a professor. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I make uh, analog cell phones. This is the analog cell phone. Can you imagine? Uh, how would that work? I don't have to imagine. I yeah. make them. Yeah. They have vacuum tubes, and so they have that nice analog sound to them. Okay. Yeah. Get, they get a little warm. It's yeah. the only thing. Yeah, and large. They are large. Yeah. Um, s- this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode is going to end mm. before the next two hours of the episode. Cause I, but you've got a lot of good free content already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, of us speculating about various yeah. different things. Um, so if you, if you want to listen to this full episode and you're not a patron, become a patron by going to patreon.com. Um, Birdo, if a charismatic person said, uh, see, who is your bad person? Hitler? No, let's not do it. Okay, Alec Baldwin. If, sure. Alec, if Alec Baldwin was to sure. compel the listeners to become a patron, how would he do it? Listen to me. I'm going to only say this once, but this is the most important thing you will ever have heard in your lives. You have a once in a billion universes opportunity to donate and support the single most important thing in humanity and in history, the Psychology in Seattle podcast. This is your opportunity. If I don't see you join up, I'm coming to your house. I'm going to look you straight in the eye, and you're going to have to answer to me. ABP, always be a patron.
All right. So we're in the patron zone, people. Thank you for being a patron. All right. Let's look into the history of charisma. goes back to ancient Greece, mm. as most things do for us in the Western Cara. society. Bisma. Yeah. Uh, the Greek goddess uh, Charis, I think it's pronounced. Mm. Uh, the literal translation, translation from, the, from ancient Greek was God's gift. And it meant many things back then. It meant charming, beautiful, alluring, excitement, mm. or pleasure. So it kind of had a lot of different meanings to it. Uh, it first was made popular in science as a concept by sociologist Max Weber in the 1940s, looking at politics maybe, probably in response to Hitler's influence on Germany and the world. Uh, Max Weber's assertions were that charismatic leaders are endowed with a supernatural, superhuman power. I see. And that charismatic authority resulted from times of psychic, physical, economic, ethical, religious, or political distress. Mm. So you had to have someone who had su- almost supernatural ability to compel followership, and it had to exist in a time of a lot of uh, societal distress. And charisma also results from the follower believing that this person has a- an extraordinary quality of some kind. I have an, uh, uh, an idea about the need for the stress. Yeah. Um. You know, being truly charismatic, the way at least we picture it, you know, kind of what I was doing to impersonating some weird version of Alec Baldwin, um, it's dangerous. It can be societally or uh, dangerous with your peers, right? Because it can fail. It can fall flat on its face. So if you think about it, how would a person find that voice if it's not by taking the risk to try that voice out? And so my hypothesis is that Someone that has less to lose or, in other words, has more at stake actually will probably take that chance more. Uh, The example is if someone's pretty comfortable with their life and they feel like, you know, if I speak up right now, I could lose this comfort, they probably won't as much. It'll be more rare. But someone's like feels, whether it's true or not, like they're at the edge of their seat and their rope and they're like, well, what do I have to lose? So, And if they also happen to have the right qualities, they'll speak up. And it, they take that chance. And then for some, it works. And for some, it doesn't. And for the ones that it works, we hear about them. Right. Yeah, we'll get into that uh, later. So um, what we're looking at here is different kinds of, of charisma, too. Um, and Max Weber was mainly looking at the charisma when we look at Hitler and FDR and those kinds of right. people. Uh, but what about the charisma when you're you just have like a brother who's charming or something, or when you're the life of the party? So that's so that's another thing. Um, so we're going to get into that uh, later. But first, let's talk about the definition. There's lots of components. What do you think linguistically? What words do you think are in the clinical literature defining charisma? Oh, in the clinical literature. Um... Narcissist. <laughs> okay. What else? Um, extrovert. Okay. Mm, uh, communi- clear communicator. Okay. Uh, da, da, da. I don't know what other type of things you're looking for here. Well, it's sort of hard, right? Because yeah. we're not used to thinking about this. But once I say these words, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, why didn't... I guess I knew those... And certainly psychopathic. Uh no, 
I mean, I'm saying like, like I, I bet you that there's discussion about whether psychopaths are narcissists. Oh, okay. Um, or, or, uh, well, I'll cut to the chase and there's not. I mean, narcissism, uh, when we're getting into the research, uh, actually can harm charisma um, because when you exhibit nar- narcissism, now being self-confident can help. Uh, psychopathic, obviously, if you give off the impression like you don't care about people, yeah. that's not going to be very charismatic. But you have to be a little bit psychopathic to be able to break the rules and and say, you know, I'm going to say this, even though some people might not like it, that kind of thing. But anyway, uh, so these are the following. I, I compiled all the different literature and words. Influential and persuasive. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that didn't it didn't occur to you. Because I wasn't thinking like – when you first asked the question, I was thinking of like psychopathologies that might go along with it. So I wasn't thinking yeah. along those lines. Well, okay. If you're thinking along those lines, what else would you say? I mean, because um, you said good communicator. Yeah, because I started thinking, I, I think this might be more what he said. I, I'm trying to reverse engineer your question in the, on the fly. So I'm like, okay, maybe he wants normal things that would come up in an article about what's charismatic. Um, so sure, yeah, influence. But uh, I'd say... Uh, a, a good public speaker was sort of like good communicator, but specifically uh, ability to speak in front of large crowds. Okay. Um, I'd say the good negotiator um, and good, good. Um, how do you say it? Uh, I, maybe it's uh, popular, popular. They're, they're popular okay. with their peers. All right. Well, and we're in the ballpark. Yeah. Uh, so influential and persuasive, two different things, but similar. The ability to lead people, inspirational, drawing attention from others, compelling attractiveness and being charming, alluring and magnetic, having presence in a room, inspiring devotion from others, drawing admiration from others, confident and calm under fire, assertive or dominant, authentic, and excellent communicator and speaker. So let's look at our two people that we identified. So um, I got Jack Black and Manson. So I would say, looking at this list, that Jack Black has compelling charm, that he inspires devotion. Because plenty of people have charm on the internet. Like, But it's another thing, I actually am devoted. Like, he he's released some bad YouTube videos mm-hmm. But I'm devoted to watching that, that those entire thing because it's like I feel like I kind of owe it to him or something, you know. And even though it's sure. that's ridiculous, I just you know, um, he draws attention. Obviously, I mean, you just know that guy. Yeah. He, he's like Robin Williams when he when he walks around, he just he just draws attention from other people, that's like right. on purpose. He's magnetic, Jack Black, and I understand some people hate Jack Black, which I get. On some level, like I could see, because if if you're not into his thing, I could see him being extremely annoying to you, which some people will say, which I get, because, but I think that's part of the nature of being a very compelling. Yeah, I don't think you can be, I don't think you can be well loved by many without being well disliked at least by many. Right. Uh, Jack Black is confident and he's assertive. So in terms of the compilation from the components of the liter- in the literature regarding charisma. He's charming, he inspires devotion, he draws attention, he's magnetic, he's confident, and he's assertive. If we look at Charles Manson, um, he was very influential on the people around him. He was very persuasive to the people around him. 
He had an ability to lead, which is an interesting way to put it, right? right. But when you think about it, yeah, he did. He led, you know, a couple dozen That's right. uh, teenagers around to do, you know, lots of things, including yeah. horrible things. He was very inspirational, again, right. to the family. He inspired a ton of devotion. He was very magnetic. People actually talked about that even right. before he became a thing. They would talk about his his magnetic eyes and the way he would talk was very magnetic. And I think they, the one of the best portrayals of this is in Mindhunter. He's very confident. He's very assertive. He's dominant. He's very authentic. Right. So that's a, you know that's another part of of charisma is is to be authentic and real, or to come across that way. Yeah. And he's very alluring. So. Jack Black Manson possessed different parts of the possible qualities or markers of a charismatic person, but enough where I think a lot of people would say that they have charisma. Alec Baldwin. Um, so let's look at Alec Baldwin and Hitler at right. the same time as we go through this list. Influential and persuasive. Yeah, I mean, I'd say Hitler's clearly both um, for the detriment of everyone. He was super influential to the world at large and clearly persuasive to his whole country, right? Like, you know, give or take. Like, he moved their whole country to invade yeah. Europe and it was clearly influential. Uh, Alec Baldwin is, uh, in his roles, he acts that way. I, I don't know in real life how, how much he's, uh, he's not really a, a real life leader per se, but... Uh, I would he, say he's quite persuasive. He, appeals, he appears very convincing. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he has an agenda often. Yeah. But I could absolutely see him in his personal life being very persuasive. Yeah. Ability to lead. Just, just yes or no, because there's a long list. Oh, here. sure. Uh, yes, on both cases, certainly for Hitler. Inspirational. Uh, more so Hitler, and again, in a terrible way, you know, from our perspective, of course. Uh, Alec Baldwin, I don't know how inspirational Alec Baldwin is. Yeah. Draw the attention from others. Certainly. Both of them. Both. Um, I'd say, actually, probably if Alec Baldwin and Hitler were in a room, Alec Baldwin would draw even more attention. (laughs) Compelling attractiveness and charm. Yeah, definitely Alec Baldwin. I don't know about Hitler. Clearly, he did it for some people, but I don't know about charm or attractiveness. Well, not charm. We don't know. And I I think Hitler actually was mildly charming in his personal life, but attractiveness in general, right? Um, Alluring and magnetic. Yeah, apparently he was, and definitely uh, Alec Baldwin. Presence in a room. Yeah, yeah, that is what they hire Alec Baldwin for. I don't know about Hitler in a room, certainly in front of a large crowd. Inspiring <laughs> devotion from others. Oh, my gosh. Clearly Hitler. Clearly. I don't know about Alec Baldwin as far as inspiring devotion. I think so. I mean— To, to his fans, too. Sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so there's different kinds of devotion. Obviously, the, there's a the Hitler devotion, but there's an Alec Baldwin devotion, which is similar to a Jack Black devotion, which is that— there are people who will want to listen to his podcast because they're mm-hmm. devoted to him. You know, there's a lot of podcasts out there where they interview people, but uh, some people are devoted to Alec Baldwin and his and his thing. I guess I would say if I'm the average person on the street, I love his performances. I think the guy's great in, in those things, but I don't particularly feel compelled to follow him or something. But. Know? Do some follow him? Some do, you know, because because yeah. most people don't. Just a matter of degrees, like yeah. between the two. Obviously, Hitler. <laughs> yeah. uh, draw admiration. Yeah, I think he's also drawn some. Both have, but clearly Hitler a billion times more. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, I, the fact that Alec Baldwin is still allowed to be in movies and TV sure. and talked about is a testament to his charisma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because absolutely. he has some of the worst internet gaffes yeah. of all time. Some bad I mean, recordings. Of that him. recording of him yep. yelling at his daughter yep, yep. would destroy anyone's career if right. you weren't Alec Baldwin. Uh, confident and being calm under fire. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't know. I don't know about Hitler on the calm under fire because apparently he wasn't. Well, in the beginning, <laughs> I think he was. You know, he must have had to be to a certain extent because right. otherwise, he the ability to stand up in front of a crowd and, and act like he knows what absolutely assertive and dominant or dominant. <laughs> yeah, certainly <laughs> authentic. Um, I don't know. I mean, Alec Baldwin comes off as authentic. He does, uh, and Hitler clearly did to his followers. Yeah, I. I guess that's all the requirement is, right? Do they come off right. as authentic? Right. And, and again, we tend to look at authenticity as this great thing, but at its base level, when Hitler is screaming about the Jews or about the bureaucracy of German politics at the time in the mid-30s, early 30s, people are uh, receiving him in a very authentic way. He's like, that they guy... Believe him. That guy's angry. Yeah. He's not just playing a game. Right, right, right. That guy has a that guy believes in his thing. That's the whole thing. Like you have to come across like you believe in your own yeah. re- rhetoric. And you can see this in debates, like in the political debates. You can see when someone is just making a point, like right. I just don't think that should be that way. Right. Versus the person that's like, This would never happen under my watch. Right. You know, those kind of things. Excellent communicator. Yeah. Uh, both of them. Both of them. I, I think Hitler's style uh, is a little antiquated at this point, but clearly was effective. <laughs> I think it's still compelling. I mean, it, 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 you just don't see it nowadays. It, it's not a commonly used method, but it's very compelling. Yeah, I mean, when I see uh, actual, there's this one video I watched. I, I this is a couple years ago. I watched his entire speech, yeah. and it was you know uh, subtitled to it was early in his political career before he invaded any other countries and it's interesting to hear the talking points because it was like an hour of him talking yeah and there's very specific things that he gets into he was a regular politician yeah it's just like the the public perception in the west at least has definitely moved away from valuing that style i don't know i don't know no because like when you watch when you watch the successful Presidents, for example, in the last, I don't know, 30 years, they're the, not the opposite, but they're a different tact altogether, right? I they're, mean, it's stylistically. They're measured, strong words, but measured, there's not. Uh, yeah. Now, because even Trump, like you could say he says horrible things, which I definitely agree, but he doesn't yell at you the way that a Hitler would, right? It, it is a, it yeah. is a sort of half joke after half joke and insult and, you know. But. The yelling Hitler is actually a rare Hitler. Most of the time, Hitler was a strong speaker who was like, anyway, what, yeah, right. what Hitler I, did a lot of times was he, he would start off kind of calm. He would kind of get more intense. And by the end of the hour, he was screaming. Right. If you look at a lot of the video of the mid 20th century of almost every influential politician, that that was the style. He was just better at it, right? But like same thing in Colombia, like and when you look at Martin Luther King, when you look at even the calm presidents, 
you know, the, we should ask what our country, like there were these styles of communicating that were a lot more assertive, louder voices, more gestural and more definitive. And that was, that was the way it, because it was this oratory tradition and it was uh, TV and internet and Twitter was not even a thing yet. Right. So. All right. Us. Are we good communicators and speakers? I'm a pretty good communicator. Uh, I am off the cuff. So by if you saw me give a speech, it would be pretty compelling. But I generally don't give speeches <laughs> because generally I'm improvising. So I'm like sort of. Are you a good communicator right now? For this context, yes. Yeah. If right. I was trying to give very technical information in this style, it wouldn't be as effective. Uh. Yeah, but that's not charisma. Charisma is the overall ability to talk in sure. a way that people can understand sure. and that makes it interesting. Yeah. Um, influential and persuasive. I'm somewhat persuasive, but not terribly. <laughs> influential. I've clearly been somewhat influential to a vertical audience. At, on the podcast. On the podcast. Yeah, I think... Again, this is dip, dipping into like braggy territory, boastful territory, but we have to admit, I mean, I think it's important that we look at this one for the audience to sort of hear us talk about it in terms of analyzing charisma of people and, you know, we can get on sort of the inside of this. But the other thing is that I think it's important for us to understand how we come across and what we're doing with it. Like right. for me... I've never thought about it before in terms of charisma or how influential I am, but I definitely think about the things that I want to influence people about. Right. I think about it all the time, probably more so than you do well, on the podcast. Anyway, I'm constantly spouting and soapboxing and I'm actually trying to convince people of shit. And as a professor, as a therapist, that it's a pretty big part of my thing that I do all day long is like persuading people about things. Right. Now I'm not trying to, you know, get them to buy a car, but I am trying to get, make them be a patron, you know, yeah. but uh, more sort of commonly and fundamentally, I'm trying to convince people of certain ideas that I think are going to help them. Yeah. Um, and they're hard sells sometimes, but I actually have a ton of confidence in my ability to persuade people. Yeah. Um, because I've just been, I've just practiced it for so yeah. long, you know, that when trying to tell a parent that, the way that their parenting has been all wrong and the way that their parents parented them was all wrong and that I have a better way f for them to parent their kids, that's a hard sell sometimes. Yeah. Trying to persuade someone that they um, are a equal participant in the conflict with their spouse, that's a hard sell. Yeah. And now I'm not browbeating them. I'm laying out the logic, but that's a, you know, that's a, a, a quality that a lot of people don't have. Some yeah. people have it, some people don't. And that's charismatic, I think. Yep. Um, I have found for myself that uh, I've struggled in that. A lot of times I, I think I have the right idea about something, but the way that I arrived at that idea was through a, a long series of very fast connections in my brain. And what can be a little difficult for me is to try to move someone through a path where they will arrive at the same conclusion because I I feel like, you know, it's like I cannot do all these processes for you in your brain and so things shorten out. And I also get impatient because I'm like, 
if you don't see this connection, I just, uh, I'm losing my patience now. Right. And so that makes, traditionally, that's made me a little less effective than I would like in being persuasive for some contexts. Yeah, absolutely. I am, I know, <laughs> one, that I'm not all the time the best persuasive or influential person. I also am not that interested in influencing a lot of people a lot of times. Sure. So um, so when I think about, you know, are we influential and persuasive, my answer to that is sometimes under some circumstances yeah. when we're at our best. Asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> yeah. Um, ability to lead. Yes. I have uh, in my professional life, I have been a good, I have been able to be a good leader. Yeah, uh, for me, in some contexts, not in others, I, I, I think that, well, like, I was program director for a long time, and I felt like I was good-ish. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely had my flaws, and I didn't really, I don't really mesh well with leadership of lots of people in a functional way, it, like, one could, or in a organizational way. Lead, one could say that you and I lead the podcast audience on some right. level. Uh, and I lead the podcast, you know, like 99% of the choices that this podcast has made is from me. And, and by this point, we have, you know, a number of people who are uh, part of the team. Right. And I'm the leader of the team. Um, you and I have been in musical bands right. where you and I were the leader. There was a time when you and I were in the same band. Yeah. And we were both the leader. Actually, you were a little bit more of a leader than I was. Um, but, uh, but I had leadership qualities too. And so, and that was always a thing. Every band I've been in, every successful band I've been in, since I have a tendency to lead and I feel that responsibility. And I also, when I notice there's no leader, I, I like, I can't stand it. And I just, (laughs) I just step in that every successful band I've been in, it's always I'm leading and the rest of the band members are definitely following um, meaning that I, I choose what we do. I write, <laughs> I write the music. I get the gigs. I set the tone. I, you know, like it's all on me, yeah. which is a burden, but it's also, you know, kind of, it's always, it's mainly my preferences that, <laughs> that, that get, do, that dominate, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's always confused me because, and bothered me because I, I, I've always wanted to be in a very collaborative band. Right. But I have found that, the band members that I've been, that sort of the best bands I've been in, the other musicians, they don't want to lead. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that really confused me. I would ask them, like, right, in- right. incessantly, like the band I'm in right now, um, we, we mastered the strokes, the band, the strokes, mm-hmm. and we, we mastered like 30 of their songs. And right. We got really good at it, and, we, and I felt like it was getting boring. So mm-hmm. I wanted to switch to another band. And I started throwing it out there, like, what other music do you want to do? And like, not a lot of suggestions. <laughs> and I thought I interpreted it as them. Maybe they're not really into it. But once I kind of landed on something, they, uh-huh. all t- they all took to it. I see. Which really confused me because it's like, wouldn't you want to have some control over that? <laughs> but I think not everyone cares a- enough. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I've experienced that for sure. Um, so my, my experience is that I get really annoyed at first if there's like no leader. And then when a leader steps up and I don't think it's a good leader, I also get annoyed. But I also find it refreshing if I can step back and be like, okay, fine. Let's just, 
Let's right. just follow something. Yeah. I've been in bands before. Like, I was in one band where I wasn't the leader. I was in graduate. I was getting my master's at the time. And I didn't have time to lead or write the music or anything. And so I, I was deaf. I was like, I was the last member on the on the totem pole, you know. <laughs> and I liked it. And I actually really enjoyed it. It was a refreshing kind of experience to show up to practice late, to right. uh never call anyone to get gigs, you know? And yeah. so I, I can, I can live in that world for sure. I but, think it, but it, when there's no leader, I definitely kick in like, for example, in my family. And I think this is where it, where it comes from. Yeah. Even though I'm the third out of four kids for whatever reason in my family, uh, as we got older, there was this leadership vacuum in my family. And, mm. and for whatever reason, I would always be the one to step in. Right. Like one of the things that would happen a lot would be, um, uh, Japanese people, they do things in big groups. And so <laughs> we would be at the park or we would be at the, at Seattle center, or we would be at Wajimaya or something. And everyone's just standing around being polite and no one right. really wants to assert what they want to do. And after a while, and I'd be like 19 years old. I remember <laughs> early and I'd be like, you realize we're all standing around doing nothing. How about we all go over here and do this? <laughs> and then everyone would be like, Oh, okay. Okay. That's a good idea. And then after a while I realized over time that Everyone's waiting for me yeah. to to assert something, <laughs> which on one hand is fine, but on the other hand, it's it's sort of a burden, you know. Yeah, what I, mean? so, I, I recently experienced that. I mean, I I can totally relate. I experienced this all the time. I recently experienced this in L.A. I was down there for a business trip, and I was with all these people, and you know, we had just made this closed this huge deal with uh, the latest analog valve tubes for our phones, and I was down there, and we went out on the town, and it was a pretty decent sized group and it was that it's like where are we going and then i had to be like well we're going this way right so <laughs> i think that's a personality trait of a charismatic person that uh, it's one of the elements that can contribute to one's charisma because if you don't have that right then you know either because you're just not interested or you don't really have maybe part of it is like you have to have preferences right like for me when I'm standing around in Wajimaya, this Japanese grocery store in Seattle, and we're all, I get antsy. I'm like, we're just standing in the middle of the aisle. Let's, let's go somewhere. Whereas I get the feeling like a lot of people, they don't care. They, they don't, they, they, it doesn't occur to them like something's wrong here. Well, and, and what's funny is I think a lot more people do have preferences, but they're silent about it. Right. Until someone makes a choice. And then they, <laughs> then they counter it. <laughs> then they it. complain. Right. But I, so I think that's another element of charisma. It's not just leadership, but it's, noticing your preferences and wanting to like assert them, you know, like with the podcast, you know, you and I have had a lot of other people on the podcast before. And you could say, even though I've never really thought about this way, uh, there's varying degrees of charisma that they have. Right. And the lower end charisma people, one of the things that we could say is that they just don't have much to say. You know, they don't have, they don't have a lot of burning things that they got to get off their chest. You know, and I think that that's one of, I think that's one of the elements of a charismatic person. Yeah. You know, like you've got things to say, you have preferences, you want to do stuff. Like if, if no one else is going to speak up, well then please allow me to take the mic. Cause I got a lot of stuff that right. <laughs> I need to talk about. Right. Uh, <laughs> are we inspirational? I, again, uh, believe we've, we've had some success being inspirational to the f- loyal followers of the podcast. I have inspired people professionally before as well. Yeah. I would say that apparently we're inspirational yeah. uh, to some people. Uh, I, 
if you would just ask me if I was inspirational, I would say no. That's silly. But but apparently we are. We have. And again, it's not it bragging. It, I think it's just you and know. It's the way it works. And then you know, it's just like everything. You either roll of the dice. Your audience gets big enough to where you're like, oh Jesus, it's millions. Okay, I'm. I guess I am. I am really inspirational. And it's a, a matter of degrees. There's people that are very inspirational to their family unit. Maybe it's just like yeah. four or five people. Well, before I had a podcast, or you know, for the first. Eight years of the podcast when only my mom was listening, <laughs> uh, I would like to think that I was a very inspirational as a therapist, or at least somewhat inspirational as a therapist and as a professor. Uh, yeah. My field involves a fair amount of inspiration. Okay, we got to rip through these. Uh, drawing attention from others. Do we draw attention from others? Yeah. Uh, I can, for better or for worse, draw attention from others. Yeah, I think you <laughs> possess this much greater than I do. Some of you listeners out there, and I've said this before, might be like, well, Kirk's the talkative one, and Berto's the listener who occasionally talks. As soon as these, mic goes, these mics get turned off, Berto's talking 99% of the time. I mean, I certainly have a lot of shit to say, but in social situations, I'm... And maybe it's partially because I know you're going to rise to the occasion sure. that I take a back seat to that a lot of times. Sure. Uh, again, I certainly I'm not oh, a, yeah. I'm you're, not a you're quiet. not a shy violet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, compelling attractiveness and charm. Yeah, I mean, again, these are all a matter of degrees, but clearly we are, you know, we have those qualities. Yeah, I don't know about the compelling attractiveness like the Kim Kardashians. Oh, sure. Yeah. But charming. I don't know. My butt's pretty big. Like, I, have you seen it lately? I don't know. But charming, I would say, uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's weird. I'll say you're charming. It's a matter of taste, too. Some people find me completely annoying. So right. Whatever. Alluring and magnetic. Um, I, again, it's so funny because, like, okay, in general, am I magnetic? I don't know. I don't you know. think we are. I think this is the one aspect that where I can absolutely say we don't have. I don't think you turn on the TV and you're like, oh my gosh, I am magnetically attracted right now to whatever these people are talking about. I think it's, at least in my case, my experience of myself is I'm a little bit more of an acquired taste. I'm certainly instantly uh, attention getting. And, and if you happen to stay long enough to get past some barrier, I think you will find me compelling. <laughs> but uh, it's not necessarily the same as like Prince walking into the room, you know? Yeah, I feel like I know alluring and magnetic people and I've never thought of myself as one right. of those people. Um, having presence in a room. Yeah, I can have presence in a room, but yeah, again, it depends on the room. No, I think <laughs> any room you want to have presence in, you can have. Inspiring devotion from others. I have had that to some small degrees. Right. Again podcast included uh yeah apparently you know we do inspired because it is a there are podcasts about psychology that are great yeah. i think um but don't necessarily inspire devotion like the psychology the other psychology podcasts that i listen to i find them interesting but i'm not like devoted to them the way i'm devoted to like TBTL, which mm -hmm. is this other, which is a just a comedy podcast. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I feel that way, for example, about South Park. I am devoted to South Park. In fact, I feel terrible because I haven't watched last night's episode. Uh, whereas there's other things that I enjoy. Like, actually, take Family Guy. Family Guy, I've enjoyed a lot, but I'm not devoted to Family Guy. Good. Uh, drawing admiration from others. Again, it seems like we apparently do. Uh, confident and being calm under fire. I yes. Would, yeah. I believe if there's anything, anything that I'm good at overall is being calm under fire. And, and confident. <laughs> and confident. 
because to my, even to my detriment. <laughs> because if one wasn't, if you didn't have that quality, if you second guessed a lot of things you said or did, if you were very nervous under fire, then that would suppress any kind of charismatic quality yeah. that you had. I mean, if you watched, and I don't recommend it, but if you watched video of me from my early uh, onstage music performances with a band, it was terrible. And yet, somehow, I was like, I'm going to keep going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so same here. Uh, one could say I'm still in that, in that ballpark. No, I would not say that. <laughs> um, assertive, yes, we're both assertive. Dominant, I would say, in certain respects, but not in the sort of Manson respect. And authentic, I would say, yes. Yes. Actually, I would say that for both of us, very much so. All right. So that was interesting, I think. (laughs) Now, we haven't even gotten into the definitions yet. There's a lot of different definitions. I just gave you a compilation of the different components of the different definitions. Um, But if we're going to take charisma seriously in our field, we have to define it properly and reach a consensus, which we haven't done yet, by the way. Um, one of the most uh, original uh, definitions of charisma from, 19, from 1977 by House was basically is individuals who use their personal abilities to profound affect their followers. Um, so what problems are there with this definition? Individuals mm-hmm. who use their personal abilities to profoundly affect their followers. Individuals who use their ability to profoundly affect their followers. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, uh, as a definition of charisma, yeah, it might be that uh, they don't necessarily have to use their. Well, I don't know. Actually, it seems like a component of it, but it's not all encompassing. Yeah, it doesn't seem very encompassing. I mean, other so it's not very all encompassing. Another problem is that. What personal abilities are you talking about? And also, yeah. what what profound effects? Uh, okay, are you talking so about? so as a, that's a great example. So, let's take uh, NBA. You can have a basketball player that's really good, right? They're really strong on the field, really good. That alone doesn't necessarily ri- does not necessarily rise them to the level of a Michael Jordan, right? right. Michael Jordan had both. Maybe that's a bad example because he was like the best and ridiculously charismatic. But you could have imagined, in fact, there are many players that are good. They're not necessarily the most charismatic. Um, so it, it would have to be more specific on what those abilities are, for one. Yeah. And what about people who are charismatic or seen as charismatic, who have no personal abilities, really? Yeah. Or what if someone has all the personal traits of a charismatic person, but they haven't chosen to broadcast yeah. it? Are they still charismatic, you know, because they don't have any followers? You know, yeah. what, what if you're very charismatic, but you don't have any followers because you don't bother with it or your life circumstances are such that you can't have access to followers? Yeah. Are you still charismatic? Uh, so an example could be Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites. You know, he's kind of a loser, but clearly charismatic. Right. And so there's many people like that in real life where they have a lot of potential charismatic-wise – but for whatever number of reasons, they don't act. They don't ca- capitalize on it. So my definition of charisma involves two things. This, so this is me kind of trying to lock it down into a language that makes sense to me. Number one is they draw attention and admiration from others. So I think that's important. Is that to be charismatic? Every charismatic person I can think of draws attention and admiration somehow. Uh, like having presence in a room or 
just being interesting or being alluring or, you know, there's various right. different ways in which one would draw attention. Because yeah. I, I think you can't be charismatic if you don't draw attention. Certainly right? you will not be called so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so there has to be some kind of thing about you or your circumstance. And, and, I, and I don't put it into traits or mm-hmm. circumstance. I'm just saying for whatever reason. It you're, could be your clothing. <laughs> you're, you're just drawing a shit ton of attention. For, yeah. And we'll get into clothing actually. And the second part of the definition is you have influence on others through affability and or inspiration. Through affability? Yeah. Okay. Because you can influence others through control, but that's not charisma. Sure. Uh, you know, like a, a prison warden has absolute control over people. But it's not charisma. That's not charisma. It's, it's control. It's system. But uh, so influence on others through affability or inspiration. And inspiration can be, you know, Hitler inspired his, yeah. his country. He also controlled, to some extent, the people around him. But he was very inspirational. He wasn't very affable. <laughs> right. um, but like Alec Baldwin, very affable. So this leads into different types of charisma that we've been alluding to, but I want to be more specific about. So this is just my conceptualization. Let me know what you think. So we have one conceptualization or one type of charisma, which is your big leader charisma. This is someone who actively and successfully is is being loved and followed by many people. Obama, Oprah, Gandhi, Pootie Pie, Jordan Peterson, Pootie Pie. Uh, PewDiePie, <laughs> yeah. but but also Hitler, Jim's jo- Jim yeah. Jones, Manson. These people are actively trying to get a followership, right. and they're successful. They're 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 trying, and they're and it's working. Yeah. So these people have uh, they draw attention and admiration from others, and they have influence on others through affability or inspiration. And they also have additional things. They have leadership ability. They have, they inspire followership and devotion. So they so it's not just followership, but also like devotion. They're assertive and or dominant. They're good communicators and they're persuasive. So I think this is what we've been talking about so mostly so far is like big leader charisma. So not only are you drawing attention, you have influence on others through affability or inspiration, but you also can lead. You inspire devotion, you're dominant or assertive, you're a good communicator, and you're persuasive. The The second type of charisma is what I'm calling small charisma. So this is life of the party, make friends easy, and maybe you're a leader at work, kind of. Yeah. So this is people like maybe you and me. Right. I was also thinking Mitch actually kind of has this kind of charisma in a in a subtle way. Yeah. My friend Brian Yorkey, who I grew up with, who wrote... Uh, 13 Reasons Why, screenplay. Uh, he, Ron has this charisma for sure. Yeah. yeah. So it's people when they walk into a room, they're very affable. Yeah. They're very extroverted. They have a lot of eye contact. They laugh a lot. They they say jokes a lot. You know, they're, yeah. they're very noticeable and they get people to like you right away. There's no extras on this one. It's just drawing attention and admiration from others. And they have influence on others through their affability yeah. and, and or inspiration. The third and last type is the attractive type of charisma. So this is like, uh, this is people who can, you know, they have compelling attractiveness and charm. They're alluring and magnetic. This is like Jennifer Aniston, Aniston uh, John, John Legend, Brad Pitt, Kim, Kim Kardashian, Paul Rudd, Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher is an excellent example because um, he, is it Ashton? Ashton. Ashton Kutcher is a, is a good example because 
He's not a particularly prolific actor. Right. He was on the 70s show. Yeah, yeah. And Dude, Where's My Car? And then he did a couple other things. <laughs> but, you know, it's pretty slight in terms of an overall showbiz career. Right. Uh, I mean, of all the people on the 70s show, like, why him, you know? Right. But there's just something compelling about the way that he looks, you know, yeah. and, and the way he holds himself and the, the way he makes jokes and the way he, his facial expressions and how good looking the guy right, is. Right. Um, uh, there's a friend of mine who actually dresses really well. You actually met her. She's a friend of a friend, I should say, when we went to that birthday party on the roof. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And yes. Oh, I know that, what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. That woman, the way she holds herself, the way she dresses. Definitely. It's so like, magnetic just seeing her walk across the room everyone's just staring at her right right um and you know there's plenty of attractive women in seattle but she takes it to a whole other level you know what i mean and she also kind of speaks in a very kind of magnetic way so these people they draw attention and admiration from others they have influence on others through their affability and and or inspiration and they have compelling attractiveness and charm and they're alluring and magnetic so you have the big big leader, you have the small uh, charisma, and you have the attractive charisma. Does this hold water, Berto? Yeah, that seems like an interesting breakdown. Uh, I think, and maybe it's covered in the big leader because it's not exclusive. There is that aspect of, uh, you know, the not attractive, and I mean both physically maybe, but also just like there's nothing particularly alluring about their look kind of thing. And uh, maybe not even that affable, <laughs> uh, but they are compelling for other reasons. I mean, that's probably part of that first category. And right. I think – Yeah, plenty of the yeah. big leader charismatic people, you wouldn't call them you know, very good looking, for example. Yeah, yeah. You know, Donald Trump isn't a looker. Right. But he's very apparently inspirational and – yeah. apparently in, inspires a lot of devotion to him and, appar- and, pe- and apparently is a very good speaker. And people that meet him in person have said, at least, I don't know if lately, but have said that uh, he is affable. He is personable. So, so he probably, all, so a lot of the big leaders, they probably also have small charisma as well. Right. Um, we wouldn't necessarily know that though. So that, that speaks to that. It's like you can have small and big leader. You could also have attractive. Like it's funny to think about if, Anyone has all three of them, like big leader, meaning that they inspire devotion and they're very persuasive. They're also very charismatic in person and they're also quite attractive. Um, I think the one person that pops into my mind is Michelle Obama. Yeah. Uh, she is a big leader. She sure. inspires devotion. I mean, some people think she should run for president, for example. Uh, I, from what I understand, she has very small charisma as well in terms of being, she was on uh, Conan O'Brien's right. podcast and she just comes across as a very likable person. She's very extroverted and authentic and interesting and funny. And she, she's attractive. She is the way she wears a dress to the inauguration of 2008. You know, it's, it's, it's like, whoa, like very was, striking look. You right. Know? And this was true of Obama. It was true of young Clinton. It was true of young Reagan. It was yeah. true of young Hillary. Of yeah. Yeah. So my list, if we looked at our two people here, uh, or all of our people, actually. So again, number one, draw attention. Number two, influential. Uh, the big leaders that I've identified, Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he draws attention. He's influential. 
but um, he also uh, has leadership. Lead, Malcolm Gladwell, my mentor, Paul David, Virginia Satir, and Charles Manson. They all draw attention. They're influential, but they also have leadership ability. They inspire followership and devotion. They're assertive and or dominant. They're good communicators and they're persuasive. I would say Jack Black and Billie Eilish are the attractive charisma. Probably they also have small charisma as well, but I wouldn't know. Uh, they draw t- Jack Black, Billie Eilish, they both draw attention. Right. They're both very influential on people through affability or inspiration. They, com- they have very compelling attractiveness and, tr- attractiveness and charm, and they're very alluring and magnetic, I think, to the masses. Right. Um, so if you looked at your two people, you had Alec Baldwin. Uh, which one? Is, is, he, is he small? Alec Baldwin uh, <clears throat> is definitely uh, big. Okay. Big one. He's not to the level of a of a huge politician. Well, so, does he have sure. leadership ability? Uh, that's the part that I think I think so because he he seems to have been. Uh, but but it's harder to gauge because he's an actor, right? So we don't see him a lot in like a political. So, so we realm. don't really know. Yeah. Does he inspire devotion? You were saying more so. Yes, yeah. I wasn't sure. Is he assertive and dominant in public yes, sort of definitely. discourse? Is he a good communicator? Yes, definitely. Is he persuasive? He seems so. Yeah, and I'd say as far as the uh, allure, like the the looks department, you know, he's very alluring and and attractive in that sense. So you could say he probably has all three, just similar to Michelle Obama. Probably probably has small charisma. Yeah, and he you know has attractive charisma, particularly when he was younger. Um, okay, so it's interesting. A, a, a counterexample to to someone that I think is charismatic through their work, but. It, in my experience, wasn't necessarily meeting some of the other criteria. And again, I could be mistaken. Is uh, James Mercer from uh, the Shins? He, you know his music, and when he plays on stage and stuff, it's it's incredibly charismatic, influential, whatever you know. And um, and and he's great on stage, but uh, but in person, he's you know he's a little shy. He's a little because you met subdued. him, yeah. And and um, yes, and I talked to him at length in a, two different occasions at a bar setting after a show and he was very much um underspoken you know like in, yeah in soft well and, so this this actually kind of uh, makes me think of something which is that when we've had live events for example and we've had the after parties right you and i go to the after party i'm usually wiped out because i'm I, i've been my brain's been working so after hard the 11 hour one yeah. <laughs> and you Continue the chari- I energize somehow. you. You continue the charisma train, <laughs> and you know I, I posted this picture on Facebook. I think of you, and there's just a circle of of people around you. They're all just looking at you, and you're just you're you're doing a little stand up comedy. <laughs> I'm blabbing about something, <laughs> and meanwhile I'm behind you taking a picture, <laughs> and I I just don't I just don't have the energy for that. I, I think I'm more introverted than you are in this way, and I. I I think I'm like a James Mercer kind of person, you know, it's just like I'm on when I'm on the podcast, I'm on, I'm, I'm spouting shit. I'm energized. I'm, I feel like, you know, I'm engaged Uh with the the topic and the listeners. Yeah. And then uh, you, you change context just slightly. And I'm like face to face with everyone. And suddenly I just want to crawl into a corner and like disappear. Um, I, I remember when I first was playing live with a band I was the worst possible combination of things because on stage I would try to come off as really confident, but I was making mistakes and things didn't sound so great. So 
it was probably like this sweaty kind of confidence. Like, oh man, that guy's really trying hard, you know? And then after the show, I would want compliments, but then I didn't want to hear them. And then when they didn't come, I'd get like flustered. And then yeah. I was really awkward talking to people and it was, it was just a mess. Yeah. It's, you're <laughs> preaching to the choir on that. I feel like only in the last, I don't know, three years or really even this last band that I've been in at the age of 48, I feel like I finally come to a uh, balanced place psychologically about being on stage uh-huh. where I for almost the first time, and I feel like you're not quite there yet, honestly, uh, and you can contradict me if you want. With the I, music? No, the uh, the the relaxed um, vibe. Like, oh, I, yeah. I, I, sure. Now that I'm, uh, you know, I don't know what it is about this current band that I'm in, but I feel so relaxed on stage. Um, I feel like I the way I always wanted to feel. Mm. Um, up until this band, I was exactly yeah. like you're describing just like so concerned and um and and so nervous that my i mean not nervous nervous like i'm shaking nervous sometimes yeah. shaking nervous but more just like really trying to make sure that this goes well whereas the band i'm in now i think i think it's because the four other guys are just so good at what they mm-hmm. do and also i'm not playing an instrument which is a huge thing as mm-hmm. well and, that that def- definitely matters, <laughs> right? That, that's a big. But even then, like you, you know, rewind the clock five years ago. If I was just singing in a band, which I, I, I would do sometimes, uh, I was still just overly concerned. And uh, it's just interesting how long it takes to sure. gain that kind of confidence. Because it, it wasn't like you weren't confident. You know, if you asked, if I yeah. asked you, and I might have back then. You think today's going to go well? You're going to be like, yeah, it's going to go fine. Yeah. Uh, do you have confidence in your singing ability and your bass playing? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very confident in my singing. I'm very confident in my bass playing. Um, but there's something that the sort of what's at stake or something. And, there, and I also didn't know what I didn't know when I was starting out because I, 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 the time frame I'm talking about right now is 2004, 2005. But I, and I hate to say this, but. When you performed with us just last year, I could tell you were pretty nervous on stage. Right. But that, the, and this goes to the thread of what is some of the factors. I mean, it You're was by just yourself. me. But even an, before, on, on even, an instrument that's not my primary instrument, but with even nine with, songs I just wrote and wh- just learned. Which right, I get. But right. I, I have a feeling that n- now that I've crossed this threshold, uh, you know, I've crossed many thresholds over the years of yeah. performing, but I feel like if I did that, um, I, f- I have a, I feel like I would be okay in a way that I wasn't five years ago. Cause the other thing, again, maybe I'm perceiving it wrong, but even your band plastic poly, I could tell you were in a nervous space, not as nervous as say five or 10 years ago, but still not completely just sort of at like, when so you, it, it depends. Cause first of all, you never saw me back in 2004 and 2005. I'm sure you're way, I'm sure <laughs> you're one, way no, more. Yeah. Number two. Uh, it really matters how well rehearsed everything was. For example, the last couple of shows with the with uh, Missionary with us, uh, I actually felt really confident because we had practiced so much. Yeah. And then of uh, uh, the first show we had with Plastic Poly, we had been practicing so much that I actually felt really confident. That was the one at the in West Seattle. No, 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 no. That was before that. It was in, and there were a lot of people there too, so that helped. It was our very first live show, uh, other than a barbecue that we played. Um, 
It's right there on uh, parallel to the freeway. Like, you get off, oh. and it's it's that one club uh, cafe. Um, uh, no, uh, anyways, it doesn't matter. The point oh, is, um, lo-fi. The other one, the just down the street from that. Yeah, the, it's called it's called cafe something. They might have renamed it. Oh, anyway. Yeah. All right. Anyways, but that show, <laughs> we had been practicing so much for that first show. Yeah. That we were on. Yeah. And uh, there were a lot of people. There were you know, and and so like. I actually felt really good. Other shows we had started only practice, you know, practicing less. We were working on trying to record and stuff like that. So certainly, the less practice right. we were, the more my stress levels would go up. So I think that's a big part of charisma is uh, what gets you into a space where you feel so comfortable that you give a vibe of comfortability, right. and then people are attracted to you. They're just drawn to you. Uh, when we played the show at that Crocodile a few months ago. Um, I was so confident. I felt so relaxed. I mean, I wasn't like, I'm an awesome singer, but I was like, yeah, this is going to go pretty well. Mm -hmm. A big factor is I started using in-ear monitors, and I could finally, for the first time in my entire life, actually hear my own voice (laughs) on stage, Um, which is something that, you know, non-musicians might be a little surprised by, but... You know, in these shittier clubs, which is, you know, most of the clubs that you're going to, even in the sort of moderate okay clubs, you can't, I can't hear a single thing I'm singing. Try to sing when you're deaf, essentially. It's not going to go well. Um, And so now the speakers out to the, to the floor might be blaring, but I can't, I don't hear any of that on stage. When I got the in-ears, I was just like, man, this is, this is going, and so I felt so relaxed on stage. And I felt completely natural. And I did a little bit. You weren't at that show, but I did a. I, I've I've gotten into doing a little bit of banter, a little bit of in between talking, but not too much, which I've done before. <laughs> I used to do no in between song talking because <laughs> I was just so terrified. And I had people coming up to me afterwards and just being like, "Man, that was just an amazing show. I I had no idea how good you guys were, and I had no i good. I had no idea how good you were. That's and, great. And and I and in my head, I'm like. I'm actually not that good, but I think a big part of it was I I came across right. as if I was in my element. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a big part of it, especially a lead singer. Like you got to come across like totally. you're 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 totally fine. You're fluid. You're not overthinking things. You're not yeah. you're not too concerned. You you give a vibe like things are going to work out. Yeah, it, unless it's part of your Shtick yeah. to be not confident. Like Evan Dando <laughs> or something. But like I I had close friends come up to me and say um, which was very surprising to me, they would say, you had stage presence, which mm-hmm. I've never been told that before. And I never actually thought that was possible because <laughs> I just felt I was always too nervous on stage. But they actually came up to me and said, you know, you actually command a stage really well. And I was nice. like, what the fuck? But the only thing, the difference was I just felt comfortable. Right. And that, I think that's a big thing. You got to feel, you got to get to it, whatever. And if it's practice a lot, that's one thing. Or to me, practice, practice has been true in every endeavor because, um, like, I've had to in, in my past give presentations and, and speeches and things, uh, and it's undeniable. When I've prepared, when I've practiced and prepared and, and, and really done the work, it's night and day. It's like I am yeah. super compelling. Yeah, let me give you another example where I failed this was – I gave a presentation at a conference uh, last year, and I had prepared it uh, fully in advance. You know, I feel like I'm pretty good at now at knowing how mm-hmm. much practice. 
I need to do. And I literally just stood in my office and just gave my presentation, you know, five to seven times with the slideshow. And I had this shit down, you know, and this was after months of prepping the material and the slides and everything. But uh, in the morning I was, you know, because it's an all day conference. And so I was at someone else's lecture and I was nodding off so uh-huh. badly. Uh. And I was like, oh, man, I need, I'm about to give a presentation in like a half an hour. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I'm literally nodding off already. Oh, no. So I went outside, got a cup of coffee, and, and started and just pounded this, uh-huh. cup of, this cup of coffee, which, you know, just a jolt uh, to the system where I'm now, my body is like uh, jittery and, and shaking. <laughs> And then I got on stage and I have this this like uh, tendency for my body to kick into that shaky nervousness oh. where I'm not intellectually nervous, but I'm uh, but my body Your is whole body. <laughs> <is running. laughs> yeah. And so for the first half of my presentation, I got shaky voice. I got shaky hands. And, you know, I have a, a laser pointer. It's <laughs> shaking all over the, the, the slide and and. And I'm sure in that moment, I was not very charismatic. <laughs> you know, it's just one of the, the curses of like what your body just decides to do. Right. I mean, looking back, I just shouldn't have drank a full cup of coffee before going yeah, on stage. Tough. But, but I, you know, it's, it's, it, it, so it's just that thing that I, cause I think a lot of people listening are like, or some people listening are like, okay, what's the secret to charisma? Because I feel like I've never really, you know, managed to be charismatic. Yeah. How do I, how do I tap into that? And some of this, you know, is like there's so many different barriers that'll get in your way, you know, the like just to put a fine point on it in terms of what we were talking about before, for me to become charismatic on stage required literally 30 years of playing on stage yeah, before and being a musician and practicing and thinking about things and learning how to how to move my arms when I'm on stage singing. What do you do with your hands? You know, yeah. like that's a weird thing to think about. Yeah. Um, looking at, looking at video of me on stage and going like, that was dumb. Don't do that again. Asking my wife how to go. She would go, well, this went well, but when you did this, that was kind of dumb. Oh, okay. Just 30 years of <laughs> actually more than 30 years, like 32 years of me being a musician on stage that's how long it took me to feel comfortable, to know what to do, to feel okay with what I'm doing, to have a repertoire on stage. That's another thing. Like, of what, what do you say in between songs? What, what, how do you move your body when you're on stage? Um, it's practice, 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 practice. Yep. This podcast, when we first started, I would venture to say that we weren't very charismatic in the beginning. Right. We've done it now for 11 years. Um, you know, the 10,000 hours thing, I think I've done it 10,000 hours. Yeah. Actually, I can look up exactly. I've, I keep. I'm such a list keeper. I can look up exactly how many hours I've spent total on the podcast. I have spent eight thousand one hundred hours on the podcast. You're almost there, kiddo. Yeah. Keep it up. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, after so at the at the ten thousand marker, I'll, I'll really have mastered <laughs> this podcasting thing. Yeah. Anyway, um, so we got to rip through this because, as usual, we get a a little yappy, mostly me. (laughs) Okay, how to be charismatic. So we're going to give advice, and this is based on the the research literature that they actually look at. It's it's a compilation of a lot of the research literature. So, but there's different types, right? So you got, now the attractive type, 
I don't know if there's so much you can do about that. You can, right? I mean, you, you can make yourself look better. But you can make yourself look more interesting. Right. So you could dress more. But I think that's a harder one it to attain. Harder. I think it's easier to attain the small uh, charisma. That, that said, like just a basic example. I look at pictures of myself from high school. And yes, I realize that late 80s, early 90s wasn't necessarily the best long-term fashion trends. But still, if anyone had just tapped me on the shoulder and been like, hey, man, I'm from the future. Got a couple tips for you. Just don't wear the short. The, don't wear the neon shorts with the over large, baggy blue Columbia like all weather jacket, like just stuff like that, right? Like some simple tips would have improved my uh, appearance dramatically. <laughs> yeah, actually, I would say that you're someone who dresses very well, and it probably helps. But I don't think it propels you into no say no. like. Uh, you know, super alluring. No, unless I wear my Michael Jackson red jacket yeah. at a Halloween party. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about how to achieve small charisma to become likable, charming, attractive personality, a bit ability to assert yourself in an affable manner, ability to make friends, ability to get dates, ability yeah. to um, be likable at work. Um, so uh, let me know what you think about these things. One of the things that they say in literature is to use vivid metaphors. Aristotle recognized this back in ancient Greece, saying, uh, as a translation in English, the greatest thing by far is to have a command of metaphor. It is the mark of genius. For example, vivid me metaphors like, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse yeah. instead of I'm hungry. Or watching that movie was like walking on a tightrope. So... This is interesting because I've never thought about it before, but it makes sense that to talk in, say, vivid metaphors or colorful ways right. is, is one of the things that you can do to be more compelling. I think that it's not just the metaphor. I think you have to deliver it in a certain way. Yeah. Like you, and you have to gauge, and this is something they actually don't go into literature that often, is the ability to gauge how someone's going to receive something in a particular yep. moment. Because like, you couldn't just tell someone, use vivid metaphors, you're going to be charismatic, and then they just, everything's <laughs> a metaphor to them. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it's the ability to know when to use a vivid metaphor, which metaphor to use, um, uh, how long to say that, you know, all those kinds of things. I, I got to say, so I use this all the time. I, I, I didn't, hadn't thought about it, but now it, that you're mentioning it, it makes sense. Like if I'm at a party or a social setting and I have some topic I want to talk about, I absolutely use metaphor and hyperbole to great effect. So, you know, like just the other day, you know, did you, have you guys seen the Joker yet? You know, in one of those situations where no one's talking, I'm like, anyone seen the Joker? Oh, I saw it. It's like, and then I'll say something like, oh, my gosh, I was basically reborn and my little baby self was walking down the aisle going, what am I looking at here? You know, stuff like that. And it catches the attention of the people listening. Now, it right. might turn some folks off, but right. but the point is it is vivid. You can right. picture it. You can picture a little baby Berto going down the – and I, I didn't realize I was doing that, but it makes sense. Right. Another is to tell stories well, like the story you just told. Right. You have to have it planned out. At the beginning of the story, you have to have confidence that you're going to be able to string the entire story arc together from beginning to end. It's not too long. It's not too short. It's engaging. 
So the ability to tell a story well, uh, an anecdote, if it's, even if it's just a 10-second anecdote, anecdote, but if it's 10-minute, you know, the ability to, to tell a good story it has been yeah. shown by research to increase your charisma, whether it's uh, big leadership charisma or small charisma. And so this one's one I've struggled with, and I got so much better over the years. I remember when I was in school in Columbia, I had a friend who was the best joke teller. He would tell me jokes all the time, and, and it would be so funny. I'd be rolling, and then I'd, I'd like try to remember the joke, and then I would go try to tell the same exact freaking joke. And it would land so flat. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And I didn't have the right timing. I just didn't, didn't people, in fact, I'd be trying to tell the joke and I'd get like interrupted or they'd lose focus. I'm like, like, what am I doing wrong? And it was a combination. One is I'm actually a great joke listener <laughs> and I'm a great, like, if you want to tell me an interesting story, I'm one of the best audience members you could ask for, right? <laughs> and I didn't realize that. So I was kind of thinking, well, if it goes this well on me, certainly it'll go over. But the second thing is that there is a trick to it. <laughs> and over the years, I definitely became a better storyteller, and I'm more able in, in general to kind of weave a narrative. Part of the thing that I think it, it used to get in my way a lot more is my, because my brain is thinking all the time, I would actually be sort of getting ahead of myself and then trying to shortcut parts of the story, and then people don't follow it. And then, right. You know. So similar to using vivid metaphors, the key to using effective metaphors or effective language and also the ability to tell stories well is empathy. The ability or mentalize, the ability to know as I'm talking what's happening in someone else's head. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, because a lot of people are, they're looking for these tricks. Like, okay, what do you do here? What do you do here? It's like, okay, that can get you started. But unless you have the foundation of the feedback loop of, What's actually going on in someone else's head? Now, fifth graders don't have this very well. So when they tell a story, they're just yammering, and they don't really care what's going on in your head. You know what I mean? They're just like, let me tell you about a movie I saw. And then they just start yammering, and you have no idea what they're talking about because they're very interested in their story, and they just assume you are too. The older you get, you start going, okay, what's actually going on in their head and how can I gauge that? You know, how do I know? And that's a very complex thing. I mean, the fact that our brains are so good at that, essentially, the ability to uh, think about, to predict what's going to go on in someone's head, to predict the effect it's going to have on someone, uh, think about the next, you know, five minutes of your speaking time and all the words that have to go in there. You know, it's it's bizarre that we're that good at it, (laughs) but that's hard, you know? Uh, but that's a key. It's like it's not just telling good stories. It's the ability to uh, predict and know or to have a good guess as to what's actually going on in the other person's soul as you're telling the story. The other uh, behavior is using nonverbal communication well. Yep. Move around a lot. Use your hands. Have high energy. If you sit very still and you just say the words – that's one thing. But if, if you move around a lot, you're moving your arms. Like yeah. I, I, I knew I, – one of the things that I learned about uh, charisma sort of without knowing and framing it as charisma was for, as a professor, when I first started out, I was the young 27-year-old professor who got, who got all the shitty jobs. <laughs> and the shittiest um, shift was 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Oh, so imagine teaching a class oh. 
I'm ni- sleeping already. At 9.30. Ah! Like on a Tuesday or something. Oh, my gosh. And... And you're teaching psychology stuff, you know. It it is not it's not very Bueller. <laughs> yeah, and it, it what it taught me. And so I'd have you know 16 people in this semicircle around mm-hmm. me, and I would notice when people were you know when when all 16 people have their eyes locked on me, I know wow I must be saying I must be interesting right now. When half of the room is not looking at me and they're just kind of like fiddling with their doodling or something uh, or they're looking down at the ground then I'm like uh-huh. I must I must not be as interesting as I was before right. when I see three people nodding off I say I must really not be interesting you know as a student in a class you just notice when you're nodding off or when yeah. or when you might not you might not even notice when you're interested you just sort of become interested right but when you're the professor and you see everyone not interested or everyone interested, <laughs> you realize, okay, what am I doing? And I, over time, learned that a big part of keeping people awake at 930 at night was to use a shit ton of nonverbal. Um, like most professors at my university, in my anecdotal experience, they sit down because we sit in these big there's like a conference room. You know, you got yeah. sixteen. You got sixteen students, ten, sixteen students. You sit at a big table essentially, and you and it's like a like a you know a, a rectangle. And a lot of professors just sit there. Um, I never do that. I stand. I'm I'm yeah. moving around the room. Right, right. I'm 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 walking back and forth. I'm I'm walk. I like to I like to have it an open horseshoe so I can walk into the horseshoe right. and walk right up to someone and talk directly to someone like three feet away from them. It keeps them awake. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Um, and you do this too. You know, you're very energetic. You use yeah. your hands. You use your face. You use your body. You're not a you're not a tight up tight talker. Some for some people, imagine uh, if you were doing an impression of Steve Jobs without moving. It's pretty hard because right. so much of what we associate with his presence is that stage presence of yeah. him pacing and holding his hand up to his chin and then. Right. You know, using his index finger and right. stuff like that. Or any of the major charismatic people, Bill Clinton, Barack yeah. Obama, Hitler, yeah. uh, Charlie Manson, all these people, a part of their shtick is highly identifiable by the way they use their bodies. Yep. Um, the next thing is using humor. You know, be funny. Right. Very hard thing to do. Yeah. But, uh, but if you're not inherently a funny person, which I actually don't think I am, and frankly, I don't think you are either, Berto. <laughs> Because <laughs> there are people who are just like hilariously funny, you know yeah. what I mean? But I think what you and I possess is a good sense of humor. Yeah. So we might not be stand-up comics, but we like to laugh and we like to make jokes and we understand that maybe not all our jokes are hilarious. Right. But we're willing to throw it out there, you know? Like it's charismatic to have an ease with your humor, even if it's not particularly that hilarious. Right. Like a lot of people focus on when they're trying to, okay, I got to be humorous in order to be charismatic. They try to come up with like hilarious jokes, but it's a general vibe that you and I have yeah. about just like, um, I'm, you know, I, I'm looking for funny things yep. and I want to say funny things and I'm willing to say things in a way that 
emulates humor but might not be exactly very funny but that puts people at ease and and if you're looking for tips the easiest approach for if like if you need to give a speech or if you're just trying to break the ice and stuff a little bit of self-deprecation goes a long way because in general people want to feel good about themselves and they want and they want a confident person to let them know that even though they look confident hey they're human too right which brings us to the next one which is to be approachable and this is specific to culture. Like uh, there are some things that are very specific to culture, like having lots of piercings, for example, in your face would be approachable for some cultures and not approachable for others. Right. So it just kind of depends. But there are general things like what you're saying of just being self-deprecating. Yeah. Uh, it makes you more approachable. And actually, it's, it's funny because the, the changing norms and the changing perspectives from culture to culture or time to time, as an example – I bet you anything that if you had interviewed the vast quantity of parents about Elvis or the Beatles, uh, a lot of them would have said, charismatic, are you kidding me? First of all, those hoodlums look terrible. I don't understand what anyone sees in them. They are not approachable. You know, all these kinds of things, right? And yet the the youths were like, oh my God, they're so charismatic, so approachable. Right. Uh, but other things like open body posture makes you more approachable as opposed opposing to have like a very closed off body posture. Eye contact when people approach you, you know, when, 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 when you're standing in a, when you go to a party, for example, and someone looks at you and you shy away from them, then that, that gives an impression like you're not approachable. Yeah. But if you have appropriate eye contact back with them, you give them a little smile. What if you stare at them the whole time? <laughs> yeah. And also just good hygiene is another thing that, you know, seems like it'd be obvious, but I thought of. Um, the other one is to be open to others in general. So this is things like eye contact, smiling, being polite, being affable. Um, this is another very charismatic quality, uh, listening well, this kind of thing. Um, so when it comes to the big five, uh, we have – Openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Which ones do you think are associated with charisma? Uh, openness. Do you think being open is uh, 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 related to charisma? Yes. Uh, research has found that it's not. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Conscientiousness? No. Correct. Extroversion? Yes. Yes. Uh, agreeableness? No. Slightly. Uh Neuroticism, uh, meaning if you have less neuroticism, are you more charismatic? Oh, yes. Yeah, true. So this, it's really when we look at the research literature, the empirical, you know, we I, find – I'm interested on openness. I'm surprised about that one. Yeah. Well, openness is like openness to new experiences, this kind of thing. It would seem that that would be more related to charisma, but it's not apparently. Mm-hmm. Extroversion, which seems fairly obvious, and then not being neurotic, meaning you're not – particularly nervous, essentially. Um, Agreeableness can contribute a little bit, but big five personality traits only accounted for about 12% of the variance in charisma, which is is something to say, but it's pretty small. Meaning that when to measure charisma, looking at big five is a pretty poor way of being able to predict how charisma, so for example, someone could be really high in the openness scale and have a ton of charisma because it just, it's not that, much of a factor. The other thing here is to convey warmth and empathy. You don't necessarily have to do this, just like you don't have to be that funny sure. to be charismatic, but it definitely helps. To be yeah. able to um, convey that you care, right. that you're a warm person, 
you know, that you have empathy for other people, you listen well, is very compelling to people. Yeah. Like Bill Clinton was a master of this. Right. He's the first person that comes to mind about that. In person, he would – and again, I think Donald Trump, when people meet him in person, obviously some people are potentially allegedly sexually assaulted by him in real life. But some people will say that, as you said, he listens – he gives this impression like he's really listening to you and that he really cares about you You know, in, in a way that um, he wouldn't necessarily have to. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, you want to convey trustworthiness by being authentic, self-disclosing, and being real. Uh, this is also very uh, alluring to people. Just like, wow, that person, you know. So when we think about Jack Black, I think he's very authentic. I think he self-discloses a lot on his Jimblinsky Games uh, uh, YouTube channel. He does that a lot. I mean, he he brings the cameras into his room. He right. brings the camera into the, his bathroom. You know, he sell, he like, actually it's funny. He, um, he was going on a trip because, uh, tenacious D is uh, touring and he has Metamucil. <laughs> and I was like, and this is, you know, again, charisma and followership. I immediately went out to the store and bought Metamucil because I don't get enough fiber <laughs> in my diet. And I've been, Loving Metamucil, and every time I I have my glass of Metamucil powder, is it better than the film husks? I don't know. Okay. I think so because you know the other fiber that I used to have in the past, it came in these little gel packs. Okay, and uh, I don't. It wasn't as effective as it is Metamucil. You put in water and you mix it up, and okay. um, I find it to be really. Uh, Really magical. <laughs> oh, it's funny because you told me about film husk yeah. years ago. Yeah, that would have been. And I ago. started using it, and I was a changed man. <laughs> do you use it now? Uh, in my shakes, yeah. I don't oh, okay. have them every day, but when I when I do, I don't always have shakes. Do you mix? Do, you mix it in like powder? It in. Oh, it's probably the same. It's probably similar. But so, anyway, so yeah, being real, being authentic. Uh, you're pretty real and authentic. I am. I was gonna say interesting because it doesn't seem to go hand in hand with everyone that I can think of. You can you can imagine um, Tom Cruise, for example. You know, well, there's different types of authenticity, right? Yeah. There's authentic, like, yes, I'm in Scientology, and, oh, there, I, and yeah. there's authentic, like, I'm really happy right now. I, I was actually referring more because you were saying how Jack Black's very self-disclosing and things like that. Where some some charismatic celebrities, you hardly know anything about their real personal lives, you know, mm-hmm. other than what the tabloids report. But are they authentic in the moment? Do you know what I mean? Are, are they... Right. Because, like, a, a, another extreme on the other end is inauthentic, meaning that people don't really get a sense for your emotional state. And, like, you come across like you're hiding something, like you're not really being spontaneous. So it's not necessarily about being authentic. It's about being trustworthy. Can, yeah. Do people actually trust you? Yeah, yeah. Um, do people... Because you could say no politician is very authentic. Yeah. But are some are do some politicians? They seem more authentic. Some seem more authentic. Do they seem trustworthy? You know, I remember yeah. that was the big thing about George W. Uh, that you know when you would hear people voting for him you or can having have a beer with the guy, right? You just uh, Gore. You can't. It seems like you can't really trust him. But but <laughs> right, George right. W. Man, he just seems like a regular guy. Seems like you can trust him. Now, was George W. particularly self-disclosing or no, authentic? You're right. <laughs> no, but he's but he came across very trustworthy. That's so funny. You're right. <laughs> um, being socially confident and assertive is another thing. 
so reaching out to others, keeping the conversation going. Uh, so you just want to be confident. You want to be assertive. You want to reach out to others. You want to, you know, keep lubricate the conversations. Um, and if things go a little wrong, you know, just be have have a repertoire. You know, I yeah. find like that's a big part of it. 16-year-olds typically don't have a repertoire. So when they go to like a party with adults, for example, most 16-year-olds are terrified of that or they just sit in the corner with their phones. Not because they hate people, but because they have no repertoire of how to respond to things. If if their uncle's friend comes over and says, uh, hey, what are you doing on your phone? The child might literally have no response to that that they know of that they're confident in. (laughs) Whereas adults do, they'd be yeah. like, "Oh, well, you know, I'm playing this game and it's kind of dumb." But yeah. but the 16 year old might have never <laughs> said such a thing and doesn't have that automatic certainly yeah. response. And so having a repertoire of you know options, and this is actually something. Actually, I hadn't thought about this, but part of what I try to teach my supervisees, I guess, is to be charismatic as a as a therapist. And a big part that I put forth to them is. You got to build your repertoire. <laughs> and the fact that you're very nervous right now about being a therapist and the fact that you feel like you ha- like you're really a terrible therapist is because you just don't have you don't you haven't built up your repertoire and so right. when something happens in a session you don't know what to say next because right. you have all these sort of amorphous goals and hopes but you have no way of translating that into an actual sentence that matches the situation. Yeah. And a reaction physically and Totally. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's true in relationships, too. Yeah. Think about it. When you're starting in relationships, what's your repertoire? <laughs> right. Yeah. Have, that's it's a big part of charm and a big part of charisma is um, to any moment you have like 10 different options. Right. And you, you, uh, you know, flip through that Rolodex literally in 0.1 seconds to choose what right. you believe to be the most likely thing to do that will produce the effect you want, which is to get the person to like you or yeah, get yeah. the person to feel heard or get the person to feel um, comfortable or something like that. It's, a, again, a bizarre aspect of our brain power. <laughs> the ability to do that is just insane to me. The last thing here on how to achieve small charisma is to give the impression to others that other people see you as charismatic and or important. <laughs> and I know this is pretty crass, but that's a thing. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> so how do you do that, right? So so now some of it can be natural. Like when you and I, um, uh, you know, for example, go to an after party sure. and say some some listener to the podcast drags their friend. Well, the friend is going to be like, that's Kirk and Umberto. They're the podcasters that, right. I, that I've been listening to. The, the, the friend who has no idea who we are is automatically going to think of us as charismatic people. Right. Ooh, that, you know, you know our, our alluring magnetism is going to rise just because the other person said yeah. that's the, the, those are the people that do the podcast. Um, so, you know, how do you engineer that exactly? I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, if there's things that you can do, like um, if you're trying, I suppose, is when you walk into a party, just if I'm good, or mm-hmm. if you walk into a staff meeting, um, try to have little connections with people when you walk in the room. Right. And then people who watch that go, oh, that person 
must be liked by those people because they had little interactions with those people. Um, so maybe that's something that if you were trying to engineer, it's just like try to connect with people in larger groups. And then when other people see that, then they right. go, that person must be a likable, approachable person. <laughs> this reminds me of – so because I am good at sort of social engineering my way into the first or second level of a social – uh, of a social group. Um, I remember I was going to this one party back when I was in college for a professional society that was part of that college, and it was for Hispanics. And I, I go to the party, and I don't know the leaders very well, but I know some of the other people. And I social engineer my way because, you know, I can, I can turn on the charm during the thing so that I'm kind of invited to the sort of after party party. And so, like, it's less people now, and I'm, like, sitting there being glib and superficial and blah, blah. But then I, I started feeling, like, a little bit like a third wheel because they then start talking about a previous conference or a previous thing, and they start telling all these kind of, oh, I remember what happened kind of situations. And they have all these little inside jokes, like, and they, they say, they, I remember they were taking a drink of of Don Julio or something, and they had, like, a little saying to go along with it. And I just felt like such an outsider. Mm-hmm. So it was a case where I, I overdid my, my welcome. Like I went in and I'm in, but then I have nothing to contribute and I feel like an outsider. So it's kind of funny. But, but it, it was the case where I used... But imagine if you did the opposite. Like you just sat in the corner mm-hmm. and didn't approach and didn't try. Right. You'd be even less charismatic. Right. And my point to what you were bringing up is what I would do if I were trying to do that is the next party, I would leverage the fact that I was at that in some way, I would say, oh, last time was so great, those Don Julio shots or whatever. And if someone is watching that, they will go, oh, he's now an insider. Yeah. And it, you know. <laughs> I mean, not the best example, but. I mean, I wouldn't have done that because that's a little on the sleazy side. Right. But I'm saying, like, you can uh, kind of. Well, maybe, from- maybe well, maybe a more subtle way, which, in, you know, in light of what you're saying, is to say, uh, so last time, you know, in a group of three yeah. or four people, you identify one person. You say, last time when we saw each other at the party, you were talking about how you were stressed out about this test. How'd you do? Right. So that that gives the impression like you're connected on some level. Right. That as, as an example, uh, there is – I mentioned that I went out in L.A. with some of my coworkers and stuff. And one of the things that happened late that night, it was like 2 a.m. in the morning, is – one of them is from Australia, and he said, hey, now, and I started going, hey, now, don't dream it's over. And then the rest of the night, it was a thing. Hey, now, you're hey a rock now. star. Well, we went the other. And so every time anyone would say, hey, now, the other person would go, hey, now, and then everyone would break into the song. Well, so after that, whenever we've been hanging out with other people, we will do it. And then the other people notice that there's some sort of like inside joke. And so then they want to feel included. And so then the story comes out. And then it's sort of like a little social capital that you can spend because they're like, yeah, yeah, see, I do fun things with human beings. And now in your mind, the person I don't know as well, you see me as someone who has fun with human beings. So if you can spin little tales from previous engagements to your advantage to gain a little bit of cred with the new people – that's that's a way to do it. <laughs> Just don't be sleazy about it. Just be right. You know, be be light about it. Light right. touch. Uh, the last things here I'll say about small charisma is making other people feel comfortable. That's a big thing, and you know, because 
again, some a minority of people listening are like, how do I approach the girl at the bar? Because yeah. charisma has something to do with it. And the there's all this advice about like, oh, you got to compliment their shoes and make fun of their face or whatever. <laughs> whatever the, But the key is that most people, if not all, especially in a situation where you're approaching someone, you know, in, out of nowhere, is supremely uncomfortable with that situation, even if they're not letting on. Yeah. And one of the best things you can do is make them feel comfortable somehow. Now, that's a, that's a very subtle skill of yeah. how do you make someone feel comfortable. Um, one of the things that I would advise, some because I've ha- actually had clients that um, I've worked with on this you know, very kind of micro issue of like, how do you meet people in bars? But one of the things that I would tell them was when you walk up to them, uh, don't put them on the spot. So you want to put yourself on the spots. And, you, and any question you ask of them, you want it to be very simple answer. Right. Um, now, of course, you don't want to approach people who don't want to be approached. But in sort of meat markety places, you know, probably half the people are okay with being approached. When you walk up, you want to have very simple answers. You don't want to say something like, um, so what do you think about Donald Trump? <laughs> or, what, you know, uh, you know, who are you and why? Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Who are you and why? So now <laughs> these kinds of questions you can ask farther down the line. And uh, oh, I've made that mistake. My, my, my bad question. I don't know why I would go to this so often. It was like, so what do you do? Yeah. And a lot of people get really thrown off. Right. Well, because it there's there's a lot of pitfalls in there yeah. of just like am, is my job shittier compared yeah. to your job? Uh is is am I not interesting enough? Right. Whereas if you ask someone like um a simple question like uh what are you drinking? Yep. Or do you like this song? Yep. Or um you know like you have a picture on your phone and you're like what do you think of this picture? You know, or, or do you think, do you think the person in this picture, do you, do you like that dress or do you not like that dress? Right. Like there's help certain. Help me settle a debt. A yeah. Debt, not a debt. A bet. <laughs> Let me, help me settle a debt. Yeah. Uh, I got See, some. I just screwed up. I, I just got... approached the girl at the bar. <laughs> help me settle a debt. No. Very comfortable question. Hey, I have student loans. Can you help me settle it? Um, and uh, so that's, that's just a tiny little thing. But, but overall, even if you're at work or. You're just at a you know a house party or something. The key is is don't make people feel uncomfortable and try to make them feel comfortable. Now you have to have a shit ton of empathy and a shit ton of repertoire yeah. to manage that, and a shit ton of like experience of like okay, these kinds of things make people that my the way of delivering this. Like there's a way of walking up to someone and saying, um, you know, what's your job? That's a very off putting way, and there's a way of walking up that's very Unputting, if you will, and and, and uh, feel free to cut your losses nicely, quickly. So if things are not going well, don't don't feel like you got to work at it the whole night. Just be like, all right, cool. Talk to you in a bit and move on. Yeah. Another one is to make fe- people feel important and valued. They right. again, because most people are uncomfortable and terrified, even though they don't look it. Most people also feel very insecure about how important and valuable they are. And if you go up to them and you say like. Um, uh, you know, say you know them at work, yeah. and you uh, and I do this all the time. Not because I'm trying to be charismatic, but because I know how much it means to me to get this kind of feedback. Yeah. But like, I'll walk up to because there's a lot of novice professors at my university now because a lot of the older professors retired. And one of the, and but I even, I would even do this with the with the experienced professors back in the day. 
I would walk up to them, you know, after, cause I gather a lot of data on outcomes. And, and when I would find like one professor was really well liked in a class, I would walk up to them and be, Hey, I read all your evaluations from that one class and your students really loved you, man. You must be really doing a great job as a professor. Um, I do that because I care, <laughs> but I'm guessing that probably makes me charismatic because to walk away from interactions with me feeling as though they're valued and that they're important to me, or I've, I've pointed out their importance right. or something, I, I'm guessing that that, you know, potentially makes me more charismatic to them. I don't know. Um, now, that's just small charisma, we're going to leave out attractive charisma. Let's get, a, let's get to big leadership charisma. This is the main charisma that is discussed in the, in the clinical literature. We've got to rattle through this because you and I are going to a 70s sing-along thing. We've got to get That's to that. That's right. Um, so the big leadership, show self-confidence, uh, be captivating and extroverted. Uh, and this, this is actually pretty important. So to be, to be the Donald Trumps and the Hitlers and the Barack Obamas and the Michelle Obamas of the world – you got to be expressive, energetic, and optimistic. And that's actually one of the things they found in the literature was you got to be optimistic, which is interesting. Yeah. Because you wouldn't necessarily say Donald Trump is optimistic, but he kind of is. Yeah. I'm going to build that wall. Mexico is going to pay for it. Right. We're going to make America great like, again. Ridiculously optimistic. <laughs> but uh, uh, Obama, hope and change. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about Reagan. like- Every, every one of these, uh, Hitler, ridiculously yeah. We're going to create the, yeah. the wonderful, you know, society- uh, draw attention right. from other people. Be you want to energize people. You got to be loud. You got to use metaphors and imagery. You got to arouse emotions. This is the big one: is to to really captivate. You have to arouse the emotions in, in people. And by the way, optimism in the, in these cases doesn't mean a positive outcome, uh, or at least no. you know because. The Charisma leaders... has no more moral <laughs> right. judgments. Right. So, like the leaders that uh, are like. The world is ending on 2012, and we're all going to dress in these funny suits and drink this Kool-Aid or whatever. Uh, they're very optimistic that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Uh, learn how to control your presentation well. Uh, this is something that we've talked about with small charisma a little bit, but it's way more important for big leadership charisma. Right. The, the tie you wear. Practice, the, practice, 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 practice. Right. The way you word certain things. The the your facial expression um i actually uh learned from this a little bit of my stage presence because when i sing music if i'm just being sort of natural yeah i like to close my eyes you've actually told me stop closing your yeah, eyes yeah, yeah. cuz yeah. i don't when i sing and play music particularly if i'm pl playing a guitar and sing I just like to close my eyes. It just uh -huh. it just feels natural to me. Yeah, I don't know why. Plus, being on stage, the lights are so bright. I can't see anyone anyway. So, right. what's the diff? Um, it's just so much easier to concentrate on how I'm singing if my eyes are closed. Right. And when I'm singing like by myself, you know, in my right. office, I close my eyes. But I'd be on stage. I'd be closing my eyes. People and you people and other people come up to me like, "Stop closing your eyes." It, yeah, I want to see you. It looks weird, yeah. and I'm always like, well, "What's the diff? I can't see you." <laughs> so you know, with the light. But but I learned, and I said, "Okay." And I started to force myself to open my eyes. Right. <laughs> in in um, the other thing, I'm Asian, so maybe you just think my eyes are closed. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, also research shows is having a distinctive look. Yeah, can make you very charismatic like a as little a mustache. 
like a little mustache or Abraham Lincoln's interesting face or Rasputin's look. Rasputin had a weird look. Trump's hair. Michael Jackson's glove. Overall. Prince overall, yeah. Boris Johnson's hair. (laughs) Oh, geez. Uh, So not necessarily an attractive, interesting look. No, that's the point. It doesn't have to be attractive. That's what I was saying earlier about outside the norm. Yeah. Gorbachev's (laughs) birthmark. Yeah. Um, and also research shows that having a masculine presentation, but, you know, that's because we live in a sexist society. Um, also, be inspirational. You want to use enthusiasm, confidence, commitment to the cause. That's a big part of it. And that's I, part of what I think potentially could, inc- you know, sort of be attributed to my charisma on the podcast is I'm when I have a cause or a, a thing, a soapbox, uh, at least I exhibit or seem to give off the impression that I'm pretty committed to it because it, it comes from the heart. Yeah. And all big leader charismatic people, they come across anyway that they're very dedicated to the cause. Because right. if you're going to follow them and you're going to you know, spend your followership points on them, <laughs> you don't want to waste it on someone who's not really that into it. So I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't mean this stuff, you guys. Right. You got to have a vision and you got to communicate it well. Steve Jobs. Martin Luther King, Donald Trump, they had visions and they communicated it well. Yep. Uh, and well doesn't mean that it resonates with everyone. It just needs to resonate with enough people. And this will be simple, simple. Another thing is challenging the status quo. Uh, that actually will increase your charisma for big leadership, uh, which is sort of funny because it's like, well, what if things are going well? <laughs> You're not, very, but it doesn't compel charisma. Right. Like people right. want, they want to. Everyone has something they would rather be different, right. and they don't want a leader, leader. Like, actually, when I first became chair of my program, I had been a part of the program for so long and seen things improve over time mm-hmm. that when I became program director, I was like, well, things are going pretty well. I've been looking at the numbers for a long time. We're profitable. Uh, students really like the program. So if I change a lot, I risk actually screwing things up. So in a lot of ways, I just want to kind of keep it as right. it is. And I remember telling people that and people being like the status quo, <laughs> like that's what you're, that's you're the, you're the Your new vision is the status quo. Yeah. And, I, and people were actually really had a lot of disdain for that, but I'm like, well, but the numbers show we're doing really well. <laughs> and, and that, that attitude sadly is what is compelling us to finish the resources of our planet. Because just if you extrapolate it all the way, it's like everything, right? Wall Street, everything. It's like we can't just have that nice store in the corner sell the same things for 50 years and be happy about it's it. It's got to expand. It's got to expand. Yeah. you got to get taken over by a multinational. Another thing is to be controversial. So Jordan Peterson comes to mind. Um, if you have a controversial topic that you become known for, right. it can increase your charisma. Yeah, I could see uh, – it being hard to develop a following if you're like, God damn it, vanilla ice cream is pretty good to some people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, promote ideas of urgency, you know. So you have to, again, this is part of that emotional engagement of just like, if we don't do something soon. The immigrants are coming. They're taking over everything. Or the earth is going to become a, you know, right. thousand degree husk. Or Mexicans are coming for your jobs. Or terrorists are coming for your kids. Or... Yeah. 
the globalists are coming for your guns or Republicans are, are going to make rape legal or the economy is in danger. Because the urgency makes you panic and then you look around for who could get us out of this dangerous situation. Exactly. Uh, give the impression, again, that other people see you as charismatic or important uh, by having Most a lot- people tell me I'm the best at everything. <laughs> or you had a lot of people at your inauguration speech. Right. Um, so this can be very subtle or it can be not so – you know, the not so subtle as at a large – a crowd at my inauguration. Subtle things is um, the way you speak. If you know when you walk into a room, uh, the way you talk, the way you walk, could seem like an important person or not an important person. Um, the clothes you wear, the jewelry, the car you drive again, depending on the kinds of um, uh, culture you live in. But also like the shrink next door. I don't. You didn't listen to that podcast, but um, the guy was trying to be very charismatic. So whenever he saw a famous person like Gwyneth Paltrow, he always made, even if it was just for two seconds, he always made sure he got a picture of the two of them. Oh, okay. And then would frame it and put it up in his house. Uh, <laughs> and so when people saw that picture, it instantly elevated his charisma, oh. even though he wasn't a very charismatic person I like see. in real life. Um. You want to show that you're willing to take sacrifices, make sacrifices yeah. in your own life. Uh, because people who sacrifice are signaling that they are so confident in their leadership and their cause that they aren't really worried about sacrificing right. things. Like Gandhi fasting, Nelson Mandela going to prison, Jesus killing death, right. allowed himself to die, and also he did some other self-sacrificing things. Fidel Castro literally being at the front line of the battle with yeah. the bullets flying. Fidel Castro in the beginning, I mean, he was like, right. he, he had a gun. He was, you know, front line. Um Jimi Hendrix, lighting your guitar on fire. Um, give me liberty or give me death. Um, encouraging half of the country to, to, to blast them on the media like Donald Trump. Like, yeah. you know, to Republicans, they could look at Donald Trump and be like, thank you for sacrificing and being sort of the punching bag to the left. Right, right, and sacrifice, because, right. you know, you're, you say things you know you're going to get beat up for. Yep. You must be so dedicated to your cause that you're even willing to, to suffer through that. Um, having an 11 hour podcast, uh, this signals that, you know, look, I'm into this. I'm never going to give up and your leadership devotion to me is not going to be wasted. I'm, I'm, I'm never going to stop. And if you spend your leadership points on me, they're not wasted. I'm not, I'm never going to let you down. You know what I mean? I'm never going to stop. I'm willing to, I'm willing to even die. We're going to Rick Astley this biatch. (laughs) Um, and also just be in the right time and the right place, be in the right place at the right time, which is impossible to engineer in terms of having big leadership, uh, charisma. All right. So ripping through this very quickly, can we have too much charisma? Yes. Research shows that, you know, being too self-confident actually reduces your charisma, uh, and too little self-confidence actually reduces your charisma. You, so you have to have just the right amount. A study by Williams et al. 2018 found, interestingly, because, again, liberal psychologists are like, why was Trump elected? They found that when people, but it's all about perception. Yeah. So people who perceived their politicians like Donald Trump in the 2016 election as being narcissistic, being into themselves and overly entitled and overly grandiose about their, you know, qualifications Mm -hmm. or whatever, their hands, their intelligence, you know, their penis size. Um. If you perceive it as narcissism, then it's actually negatively associated with charisma. You will, you will, perce- you will say, uh, that person isn't very charismatic. But if you don't perceive it as being narcissistic, then, then it's a, bo- a bonus. Then it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, theories. So I'm just going to rattle through these. Sorry, everyone, for going fast because we've got to get out the door here. Uh, so the theory of charisma depends on your research area. So uh, if you are an individual sort of minded person, then you're going to look at charisma as a function of individual traits. Like charismatic people have particular traits. They're good mm-hmm. speakers. They use their hands. They use metaphors. So this is a very obvious theory, really. Uh, it, it was one that you didn't jump to, which I commend you for. This is more relevant to small charisma, I think. You know, the qualities that you have sort of transport with you to different contexts right. and will garner more uh, observations and attributions of charisma. But big leadership charisma, uh, lots of people have the qualities of a charismatic person. Only some people become massive leaders, right? So it can't just be your personal qualities. Yeah. We have a societal way of looking at things, which is the one you were talking about mainly. Systemic uh, perspective. How does the context or the system behave to create a charismatic, purpose, a charismatic person? Or what systemic person does a, does a leader serve? Like uh, an example of this is when I'm at Wajimaya, the Japanese grocery store, and there's me and 20 of my relatives, there's a system there. And if someone doesn't rise to the leadership position – i.e. me, uh, we will stand in the middle of the, of, the al- of the aisle and we will never have any fun. <laughs> we'll just stagnate there next to the sushi and nothing will happen. So the system is, is looking, there's tension around this lack <laughs> of leadership and then the person who's closest to that or will, will jump in or, or will be elected and sort of pushed in and when that person locks into that leadership position – then the system, the anxiety goes down. And so there, that's a systemic way of looking at it. And obviously you can, you can expand that to larger societies. You could say the same about when you and I go to live shows right. or to uh, after parties. Um, you are more extroverted than I am. You also feel more responsible for entertaining other people. Mm-hmm. You're, much, you're much more anxious about other, people's, uh, other people having a good time. Than I am. I'm anxious about it too, but you're more anxious than I am. So when we walk into an after party, um, uh, if if you weren't there or you were having a bad day, Mm -hmm. then I would rise to the occasion because someone has to. You and I can't go to a podcast after party and just sit in the corner and have everyone be (laughs) up to their own devices. Someone's got to galvanize the crowd. Someone's got to go out there and you know sort of keep things going. You know. And since you're doing it, then I can drift into the back and disappear and right, right, sort of phase in and out. And, but if you weren't there and I was with, you know, like my wife, for example, who's less extroverted than either one of us, then I would be the one right. entertaining everybody. So it's another systemic way of looking at it. It's that not personal sense. traits is there's roles in certain systems. Sociology, charisma derives from values in society, meaning that the charismatic leader is a representation of those values as Mm. perceived by the followers. So Donald Trump is a good example of that. There were a a lot of people in the United States who had a lot of values of – we could speculate about that – but that were – perhaps not represented in the last presidency mm-hmm. or weren't symbolized in Obama. And they elected, they had a lot of energy because they wanted a leader who symbolized what they wanted, which I think is one of the reasons why a lot of liberals, I guess people on either side of the aisle, they're like, so wait, you're the religious right. 
right. and you care about religion and Donald Trump, <laughs> but it's not his what he is. It's what he symbolizes. Yeah. He symbolizes religion more than Obama does. He symbolizes uh, you know, non-abortion. He symbolizes getting right. back to values. He symbolizes rural America more than Obama did, even though when you look at policies and lifestyle and all that kind of stuff, um, you can make arguments against that, but it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the reality. It has to right. do with what, what they symbolize to people. And surprisingly, because Donald Trump's white, so I'm surprised that he would symbolize all those things instead of Obama. <laughs> uh, and, and so like with Obama, for example, he symbolized us moving forward away from racism. Did he actually embody that, you know, to a, a great degree? One could argue yes or no. But uh, and I think that's one of the annoying things about the presidency, actually, to me, is that we put way too much importance on the presidency. It's like it's an important role, but there's a lot of government roles, even within the executive branch, for that matter. I mean, the secretary of state, the yeah. Fed, uh, your local governor, uh, your, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, the senators of your state, like there's a lot of people and like a lot of people don't even know who those people are, but everyone knows who the president is. Um, there's psychoanalytic and object relations point of view, like charisma derives from the followers unconscious. So, you know, psychoanalysis, all right. about the unconscious. So followers, people who follow charismatic people have a lot of, you know, unconscious fears and pain. So when we, as the masses, feel out of control or scared, we regress to an earlier developmental stage where we're young and we had parents who we followed mm. and we long for a powerful and safe parental figure, which is why some people think that as our society becomes more afraid, like terrorism, we tend to look more towards like a father figure as a president <clears throat> as opposed to other times when we might look to more mother figure or something. Sure. You know? um, when we feel worthless, we seek an all good other to identify with so we can internalize them to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Obviously, the president is one aspect, but you can do this just in a party. You know, yeah. If you feel worthless and you're walking around a party and the very confident person pays attention to you, you might kind of latch on to that person. You're like, I really hope I can talk to that person yeah. because – if I'm with them, then I will, I'll absorb that worth and I'll absorb, it's all unconscious, yeah. but you know, so that, and if you get enough people feeling worthless and one person who kind of gives the fantasy where other people can internalize that worth, then you have a charismatic person and a bunch of followers. Right. I think Charlie Manson had a lot of this. I think his followers were a lot of young women who were very disenfranchised and very um, uncertain about their future and a lot of young men who, you know, Vietnam and blah, blah. And Manson gave, you know, had this very strong, confident leadership position. And you looked at him, you'd be, man, I feel like shit. He, he, he clearly is into himself and is very confident. I want to, I want to absorb some of that, right. which will, uh, but it's an unconscious sort of motivation that day. for devotion. Yeah. Social psychologists. Followers need to romanticize their leaders to cope with complexity. So, you know, when societies have uh, are faced with extremely complex processes, which we often are, we look towards a leader that simplifies things for us and that reduces our overall anxiety as a society. 
The last thing here is evolution. Um, we, uh, the idea here is essentially we evolved instincts to be charismatic and we evolved instincts to uh, follow charismatic people. Sure. And I think this is actually one of the areas of evolutionary psychology that I actually enjoy. Um, now, there's no way to test this, but it does seem to follow reason, is that you have uh, – we're a very social uh, yeah. you know, animal. You have two tribes uh, in the early days. One tribe, uh, people have not evolved the mechanism to be charismatic, meaning to be extroverted and to use your arms and to be loud and to have eye contact with people and to um, command attention, you know say one tribe doesn't have that instinct to evolve that set of qualities in a, occasionally in people. They all, this tribe also doesn't have the evolved uh, instinct to notice people who talk a lot, to notice people who talk loudly, to notice people who, you know, talk with their chest open, to notice people who seem to know everyone. Like one tribe just doesn't notice that. It just doesn't register. They're just like, uh, that person's talking a lot. Well, that person's not talking a lot. Who cares? Where's my food? But you take another tribe, and they're born with an instinct, you know, a mutation, essentially, psychologically, where when they notice people talking a lot, when they notice people that are garnering a lot of attention, they tend to devote and follow that person. They tend to believe that person. They tend to want to please that person. They, tend, they have an instinct to just do what they say and obey them, okay? Are you following me so yeah, far? Yeah, totally. So one tribe has the evolved mechanisms of both be charismatic and to follow charismatic people. The other tribe doesn't. The tribe that doesn't might have a harder time weathering certain problems like a famine uh, or a war with another tribe. Maybe you just use that example. Sure. So you got two warring tribes. You have a the the you know the tribe that has the instincts for charisma to follow and to be charismatic. That tribe, uh, the charismatic person, is always challenging the status quo and has a vision for the future mm-hmm. and is very extroverted and garners your attention and galvanizes everyone and says, "Follow me into battle." They all go into battle. The other tribe next door is everyone's just kind of like. Well, you know, we'll figure it out. I don't know. Right, and like right. no one no one rises to say, I'm going to lead you. And even if someone does, people are like, well, who are you? Like, mm-hmm. you're no better than me. Why should I follow you? I'm not going to turn off my skeptical mind, my critical mind to follow you. Like, who are you? <laughs> what gives you the right to follow? What gives you the right to lead? You could see that the leadership-oriented tribe is going to smash the non-leadership totally. oriented. I, so, so I like the narrative. I would, I would just probably backtrack like millions of years and say I, I think that started developing where animals became um, – there was enough evolution where there were capabilities for animals to display properties that other, other, others of those same animals could follow. So for example – you know, we know that in, in many classes of animals, there are struggles that are mostly mostly physical, and whichever one is the the better physical specimen in that moment ends up being essentially the most charismatic leader of that pack or whatever. Uh, but then, as but why? Be, probably because of evolved psychological mechanisms that right. that that choose to notice such things. Right, right, right. And and what I'm saying is, I think you're probably right that over 
over time, some species got evolved enough that were not only were they evolved enough and they were on land maybe and things like that, but then it was an advantage to have these kinds of leaders. But they're not even talking yet. They're not necessarily humans. They're, they're mammals of some sort or whatever. And not to have, but to have instincts to have. To have instincts to have, right. Yeah. And then that has a, an advantage, a comp- competition advantage over the other species over here that yeah. doesn't have that. And, but, the, but to be clear, the main instinct is for followership. Right. You know, most people are followers. They're not, right. you know, all of us are followers of right. our politicians. Only some people are politicians. Um, right now, you and I are the only ones talking, and there's thousands of people listening. None of them are talking. <laughs> I, I could say maybe it's even... It's even something like this because I mean maybe they're talking, but it's, they're yelling at the yeah. Shut the fuck. <laughs> um, so m- every animal is born with a program, and uh, that program in many animals actually is pretty self-sufficient. You know, the program even without any society around it helps them walk. It helps them uh, eat. It helps them even sca- scavenge for for the right smells to find the food they need. Things like that. Yeah, uh, they might depending on as they. As they're more advanced, they might need to have some socialization around. It's not advanced. It's not advancement. Um, it's um, how so, how how socially oriented and and how important socialization is important to survival. So not only socialization, but being a part of a society. Like like bees, for example, are not advanced, but they're extremely social, and they evolved very intricate. Uh, followership, you know, they they follow the yeah. the queen. It's and- just that that in in insects, uh, it's probably almost all genetic. But but that's what I'm saying. It's like humans. We also, again, hard to know, have evolved genetic, so to speak, sure. instincts of followership. That when we when we see, like, I think what happened, you know, what. Some people are able to do, or I guess what every charismatic person is able to do, if I just put it as that, but some people are potentially more manipulative about it than others. They can hack into our evolutionary uh, mechanism. For example, and another evolutionary uh, evolutionary psychology mechanism is of our tendency to want carbs and fat and salt. Well, that's where Doritos come from. That's what McDonald's comes from. Eventually, over time, those marketers figured out by literally just testing A-B stuff yep. is to say, okay, these things sell. What is it about them? Well, there's a, there's a perfect ratio of fat, carb, and salt that will okay. get people to spend money. Um, they're hacking into our evolutionary design that helped us uh, 200,000 years ago by motivating us to find high-caloric, you know, high-sodium yep. food because it was very rare to find those things, high-fat food. Now that we have the technology to provide that straight to you, um, you can hack into that, and it ends up harming us. Our evolutionary nature is is harming us in the end because we have the technology. In the same way, we have the technology now to have a lot of charismatic people have access to to everybody. And so people can hack into, uh, either knowingly or unknowingly, like, for example, with Donald Trump, uh, one of the things that's very confusing to liberals is how, why do people like him? Why they vote for him? Well, one of the one of the speculations is that we evolved to pay attention to people who garner a lot of attention, whether it's positive or negative. Because, like two hundred thousand years ago, that tribe, we just have this instinct: like the person who's getting a lot, who, who uh, the person who has a lot of eyes on them, 
that person is the person I need to follow. And I, and I literally turn off certain a- aspects of my brain when that person is telling me to do something because they're the person who everyone is talking to and everyone is looking at. Not everyone's talking to, but everyone's paying attention to. So when someone is getting a lot of attention on Twitter, positive or negative, I turn off my brain because that's, that's the, that is the person that I'm supposed to be following. Yeah, I, I, I think we're in total agreement. I, I'm thinking of it more as a, not an inevitable, but a very natural evolution from, you know, the, the simpler the organism, a single cell organism, for example, is, is literally following a program and it doesn't... Um, it can't reflect on its process. It cannot lead or be follow or follow other than literally the inputs outputs of its little tiny ecosystem that it's that it's in and then as you have a, a society of little creatures uh somewhere along the line the, the the some societies evolved like oh you know what in this weird mutation this one has some advantage and all of these are following it and those survived over these other ones so now these creatures go on and multiply more and, and vary more and now there's all these societies that have leaders but the leaders are still totally genetically determined no no uh ant can rise to be the queen it doesn't exist period and then as the creatures get more complex and there's more more variables and more variability among what they can do once they're alive you start having situations where it's like actually this creature is strong enough to beat this creature who is technically the leader and that seems to be advantageous because now they have a stronger leader. Oh, this one survived more than this other one and so forth. And when we get to humans, we are so complex that it's not about physical strength at this point in general. It's about all these other more subtle factors about likability and influence and all these things. And then that's what gets you the, the leadership positions. And that's what gets you to kill the most people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh – this isn't contradicting what you're saying, but uh, just a shade uh, addition to that, it, just to reiterate what, what I was saying is that it it might be so simple because we're not we're, – we're, we're complex in a lot of ways, but we're also extremely simple. Like I want to eat Doritos even though I know they're bad for me. Right. You know, Well, the marketers know that I'm a simple human being who can't help but to eat Doritos, you know, or whatever yeah. it is that, that – I don't want to eat intellectually, you know, cognitively. I don't want to eat it. Those marketers know I am a simple person. And you, and you put a red label and you make it smell a certain way and you make it crunch a certain way. I can't stop eating it. Even though I'm like, why am I eating this? I don't want to eat it. In the same way, we're very complex creatures, but we can be hacked in terms of totally. our evolutionary nature regarding follow, followership. Yeah. You just, ha- you know, your cognitive mind could be like, I don't want to pay attention to Donald Trump's tweets, right. but I can't help it right. because <laughs> it, it, it taps into this part of me that I, I just can't, I can't control it. Yeah. You know, I, when I Facebook, when I go on Facebook, I don't want to engage in a political discussion with randos, right. but if something is engineered the perfect way that catches my eyes, I can't help it. I, I have to in, at least engage my emotions against my own will. And I think that's the part of it that's so interesting about ev- looking at it through an evolutionary lens is like, in, unless we understand that, all of us, because I think most of us understand how marketers manipulate us to eat Doritos. I think most of us, there's enough discourse in education or something. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if a lot of us understand how the internet and politicians and maybe podcasters either 
you know, on purpose or not on purpose, hack in to our followership instinct. Well, I mean, because I think a lot of us believe our followership is a is a choice. Like I choose to follow Obama because he's empirically a better person than Donald Trump. But I think uh, we also have to look at and it's not necessarily untrue. But I think we also have to look at like, what is that person doing to hack into my brain? Well, and, and so the proof of the hypothesis has been established. It, it was clear that if you leverage machine learning to influence behavior online, you can absolutely... Facebook-wise. Or any, any yeah, they, it's Facebook, but they've done a lot with Twitter. They've done... And any, anything you put in front of them, they could basically... Machine learning, use basically... YouTube, they could yeah. use anything you want. Google searches, anything. And, and to be specific, correct me if I'm wrong, you know more about this than I do with your analog stuff, but the... Um, the, the machine learning uh, program is looking at all the factors that might not be paid attention to by humans if they're going to look at something. And it looks right. at everything and looks at uh, uh, who clicks on it, how fast they cl- click on it, what else has to be happening in, in the news cycle for people to click on it. And they tie all those different things together. And then they say, this post is likely to be clicked on a lot. Yeah. Machine learning is a fancy way to say statistical analysis. It's by, just that we have com- much better tools nowadays to do it. <laughs> but a computer does the big data crunching that, right. that a human could never do. It, it used to be that you would collect the data and some statistician would have to try to come up with models to try to predict the behavior. And they'd pour through the data and maybe they'd run some simulation. Now you have tools that work very well for some applications where you don't have to come up with a model. There's a set of nodes will adjust values in such a way that they have a model. And that model yeah. is mathematical, but it's just not a simple like, it's, formula. It's, you can it's not down. intuitive, it's, right? It's a huge node network. Right. And if the computer could talk and explain it, we'd be bored because it would take forever to explain. And, it, and there wouldn't actually be a reason in human logic. No, it, It's not like, well, it's because this candidate is more. No, no, no. It's this number in this number was a little higher in this case. And right. so we nod- nudge this number. Yeah. And that's it. Well, it literally evaluates hundreds of factors at the exact yeah. same time and uh, trial and errors it in, in, you know, a billion calculations a second to yeah. kind of figure out like what's like, you know, to predict and, certain things. And so, yeah, they have right. hacked into our brain. And I think that we have to be very careful about that. But but there's active, active, nefarious proclamations by very powerful people, including our president, that deny that this is the case. Because, you know, the Cambridge Analytica stuff for both Brexit and our elections is being actively denied as having had an influence, certainly who the, who the perpetrator was. And so we have a lot of people basically not believing it. Right. They don't I, buy it. Well, for the same it, reasons, by the way. It's hard <laughs> to demonstrate, it, at the very least, how big of a factor it yeah. is. Because, again, if you ask people, you know, why did you vote for Brexit? They'll be like, well, because, you know, I believe in the mission. Right. Um, they're not going to say because my brain was hacked by Facebook um, or those in power who had the money to influence me through Facebook. Um, so and they're not irrational. You know, they're not like zombies that have been brainwashed. Well, because uh, part of the problem is it's not that they were told in some ad on Facebook, vote for blah. That's not what happened, is that they, they saw news items right. and things that said, this person did this thing, 
And then when you add them up over two years, they are convinced about a reality. Right. And they believe that that reality is is true. Right. And it has not nothing to do with their their uh, th- them being on Facebook. You know, it's just. And this is all followership, right? So particularly when a when a leader steps into that position, and and I'm only. Uh, halfway uh, aware of the research on this, but from my memory, essentially what uh, Facebook did and these other outlets, they uh, they had a general philosophy of like, we're looking for clicks. We don't really care where they come from. Right. And we want loyalty. We want people to spend more time, which isn't a bad thing to do, but when you add politics into it and actual like real political you know situations where actually entire countries, genocides can happen because of it. Um, then you start going, well, wait a second, what's the responsibility of the corporation? And, you know, Silicon Valley came out of a world of just like, look, it's not on us. Like, we just create the model. It's up to you guys to figure out, like, how you want to use it, which um, things are changing, kind of, or at least on the face of it. We'll see what happens in 50 years. But anyway, uh, so you would have someone who, uh, at the beginning, 10 years ago, they would be like, a little scared of immigrants. They're in London and they're just like, eh. and, and Facebook figures that out or even figures out like this person is likely to be, be afraid of immigrants because they're of a certain age or they click on. And Facebook, to be clear, doesn't. Facebook has the data that these other people can use to figure that out. Right. So yeah. I'm saying Facebook, yeah, like yeah. the marketers that, that yeah. use it. Um, and so this, uh, you set up this thing of just like, okay, we want more clicks. And then Facebook figures out, well, this person is likely to click on this, so they're going to get it. Uh, they click on it. That actually switches their attitudes a little bit more. They're a little bit more. They're a little bit more afraid of immigrants now because they've been shown a propagandized piece. Now they're more receptive to another message that they wouldn't have been receptive to originally if they weren't primed with the first message. Then they get the second message. Now they're going down a certain road. Now they're now they're actually emotionally afraid of the world. They're more likely to go on Facebook because they want information and and they feel like they need Facebook to inform them because Facebook and the marketers figure out how to tap into that fear, whether it's nefarious or not, you know, because a lot of people, they're they're just looking for clicks because it could it could literally just be one of the newspapers (laughs) that post things. And they also probably necessarily don't care about making people afraid. They're interested in like, well, what makes more what produces more clicks? Uh, news people are obsessed with clicks, by the right. way, even like like radio stations. And that stuff. is the currency. And so then that person becomes more engaged and they're like, huh, when we do this series of, of articles that are pumped into someone's feed, we get more clicks. Who cares what it says? Because we're just getting more clicks, which means more advertising dollars. We go down a certain road and then by the, you know, three years later, you have someone who believes that immigrants are going to kill them all and they're right around the corner and all brown people are evil. And, and they can't point to one article. Yeah. It, it, meaning it, it was that one thing that made, no, no, no. It's over, slowly and over time. Then you have a politician that naturally slips in there and boom, you got, your, you got yourself a fascist state. And, and by the way, this is not new. The system is... But it's so much more efficient. Exactly. Because, like, it used to be you run polls, you understand, oh, this demographic. And then you you craft a TV ad or even before that print ad. Or you're just standing on a corner. You're standing on a corner. It's just that, to your point, nowadays, uh, you know, when you used to have to do a survey, you have to, like, hey, sir, can I? Now people are willingly spending all day long on these networks. All day long. Right. You have unlimited access and to And you have, instead of polls every six months, you have polls like literally every second. Absolutely. That are gathering data. And at billions of people. Yeah. 
So I feel like our technology, in the same way that our food technology got ahead of us, and now we have right. um, a, a problem with you know fat cells, our technology has got ahead of us, and we don't understand how, as consumers, to protect ourselves from our brains being hacked. And, and this goes for the right and the left. I, I, it's much easier for me to, to identify right side because it's in more stark contrast to what I believe to be a more centrist position. But I know that my brain has been hacked by the left, as, uh, uh, has been hacked by the left uh, to an extent where I know I do not have an objective picture of reality, of politics, of even Donald Trump. I know that my brain has been hacked to believe certain things about Donald Trump that probably aren't exactly true, or at least the emphasis isn't exactly on point. And so um, I'm not saying I'm above it. I'm saying uh, I'm just as lost as anyone else, but at least I know that something's happening and it scares me. Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Let us know. Are we charismatic? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let us uh, (coughs) tell me if I'm uh, entertaining. And take care of yourself and other people because you deserve it.